3: Good afternoon, folks, ladies and gents. How are you doing? This is Monica Jones, your host for the Afternoon Radio Theater Sunday. Sunday being like an ice cream. And um, anyway, glad to have you. And uh, I'm here with my tech slash co-host, Victor Gouveia. Hello. Say hi to the folks. Yeah, so there he is And he's such a wonderful commodity to this show If you like what you hear We want you to um, go on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter Or any of those platforms and like us Subscribe And uh, hit your notification bell And um, you can, you'll know when we're coming on the air Um and if you don't like uh, either one of those platforms, we're on any kind of podcast that you want. Apple, uh, QCast, Google, uh, Anchor. But anyway, um, so you got all kinds of ways you can catch us. And um, if you want um, any of the episodes, uh, you can uh, write to either one of us, email us or tweet us or whatever. And uh, we'll send you a Dropbox. Link to the folder that has all the episodes in it that we've done but if you want to contact either one of us you can uh tweet me at moni60 m 60 m-o-n-n-i 6 and or you can email me coffeegal62 at gmail.com you can uh, find me on facebook i'm monica jones um And with Victor, um, you can tweet him at BlindWhose, D-L-I-N-D-W-H-O-S-E. You can find him on Facebook, Whose Blind Life Is It Anyway? You can write to him at Whose Blind Life Is It Anyway? at Gmail. And I think that about covers it. And um so this afternoon what I have for you is some um, detective shows investigator shows and um, at the end for my strawberry and whipped cream I think you'll uh, think you'll enjoy what I have and I'll tell you why I picked that certain one when we get to it um, but to, um, to start with we're gonna do an episode of dragnet and um, the name of it is, to officer shot um, that's the name of it
4: yeah Okay.
3: but anyway um, and of course it stars Jack Webb and uh, y'all may not know uh, if you're um, if you're familiar with Dragnet on TV You know, we had uh, Bill Gannon who was played by Harry Morgan um, on the radio Dragnet uh, it starts out there's this sergeant named Ben. Um, oh, I can't think of what his last name was supposed to be. Um, but um, he's Joe's partner on the radio until he dies because uh, there's an episode where he dies and the man that played him really died. So, But anyway, kick back and enjoy it, and we'll be back with you.
5: Gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet! Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life for the next 30 minutes in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files from beginning to end from crime to punishment this is the story of your police force in action drag net <laughs>
6: It was Tuesday, March 25th. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide. Detectives in Los Angeles work in pairs. My partner's Ben Romero. He's a sergeant, so am I. My name's Friday. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. I was on the way back from the record bureau, and it was 13 minutes past 11 when I got to room 42. Homicide.
5: That's a hot shot. Somebody grab it. I got it, Ed. At one two
4: four five East O'Hini Street, 1, 2, 4, 5. two officers shot. At one two four five East O'Heaney Street. Street, two officers
5: shot. What've you got, Friday? Read it. Two officers shot. Where's Romero?
7: Right here, Skipper.
5: Okay, you've got one to roll on. Get going. <laughs>
6: Both Ben and I knew where we were heading. We'd recognized the address. It was the Trapdoor Cafe, a joint in the south end of town that did business with a pretty rough crowd. Thirteen minutes later, we pulled up in front. Two patrolmen had the crowd pretty well pushed back. There was a cruiser car in front of the cafe. The car door was open, and an officer was sprawled across the seat. He was conscious but weak, and one of his pant legs was pretty red.
7: Hello, Sergeant. Hi. How you doing? I've done better. Yeah. Well, what happened? Williams and I were cruising. We've been keeping an eye on this cafe lately. Tonight we decided to take a look. And just as we went in, two guys left in a hurry, in the back door. We followed them out into the alley. It was dark out there, and I called to them. I said, Hey, fellas, just a minute. I want to talk to you. They stopped? I'll see. One of them whirled. He had a gun in his left hand. He shot both of us. Left hand, huh? Williams went down and out. I went down, but I took a shot at them. No effect. And I started crawling out here to the car so I could call in. You started crawling? Yeah. Wait a minute, Emerson. Weren't there any people around by that time? Uh, Yeah, quite a few ran out after the shots.
6: You mean nobody would help you to the car? That's right. Did you get a good look at either of the gunmen?
7: Well, one of them was tall. I think he was a redhead. There was something funny about his nose. That's all I saw. It's too dark out there. Williams was closer. I think he got a good look. Sure, the other officer, Williams, he's in pretty bad shape. Is he breathing? He's still alive, Emerson. I don't know how
6: much time he's got. Ambulance? On the way. Okay, let's round up all the men who were in the cafe. We're taking them in. We took all the men back to the city hall. There were 23 in the trapdoor cafe at the time of the shooting. We questioned all of them. One of them said there had been a redhead in the place, but he couldn't describe him. Ben and I left the interrogation room, and we went back to the squad room.
5: Righty, Romero. Got a minute? Yeah, Ed.
7: Come on, Ben. Mm.
5: Sit down. Okay. You got anything from those people you questioned?
7: Nothing we could
5: use. How's mm. Williams? Pretty bad. When do they operate?
7: Soon as he comes out of shock. Probably in the morning.
5: You boys will be there. Yeah, we will. When the surgeon digs that slug out, get it and mark it for evidence.
7: Yeah, Care for them two men shot without asking any questions. They must be hot.
5: Yeah, same thing occurred to me.
7: When we get that slug, the ballistics can tell us whether that gun's been used on other jobs. We got enough of their modus operandi to have the statistician give us a
6: run-through
5: on the IBM now.
7: One of them is left-handed, and he shoots quick.
5: Okay, be in surgery tomorrow morning at nine.
6: Neither Ben or I said much on the way home, but we were both thinking the same thing. I knew the chief was thinking it, too. Here were two men who'd shot a couple of police officers without asking any questions. Now, I suppose you've heard a lot of stories about what the force thinks of cop killers. Sure. We don't like to lose our friends and partners any better than anybody else would. Why not figure it this way? If these two guys would gun a couple of armed police officers, do you think they'd hesitate to shoot you, the unarmed citizen? next morning at nine o'clock, Ben and I had scrubbed up and we were in surgery. Williams was on the table. The surgeon started in. A lot of minutes later, he got the slug. As for Williams, they took out seven feet of his intestine and said he might
7: pull through. (laughs) Joe, here's a report from ballistics. A slug they took out of Williams come from a 44 Smith & Wesson. The same gun was used in a liquor store killing about a month ago. You call the statistician? Yeah, uh-huh. She's running all the cards on previous shooting through the IBM machine. She ought to be through about now. Let's take a look. Okay. Come on. Hi, Helen. Just a
6: second. Okay.
8: That's it, boys. These cards will give you all the shootings pulled by two men on foot who shot quick, one of them left-handed. Right. They're all yours.
7: You sure can tell a lot from just a bunch of little holes in these cars, can't you? Hmm.
8: I can't, but this IEM machine can.
7: It never ceases to amaze me. Okay, shall we check the cards, huh? Yeah, sure, sure. Mm.
6: Mm. Wait a minute, Ben. Here we are. Huh? Yeah. Here's that liquor store killing ballistics tied the Smith & Wesson in on.
7: Same gun that Emerson Williams was shot with? Well,
6: it checks out. The liquor store was in the same neighborhood as the Trapdoor Cafe. Same gun, huh? Got to be. How long ago? A month ago, yeah. Ben, take the DR number off this card and let's pull the crime report on that job. We pulled the crime report out of the files. It said that there was only one witness to that liquor store killing a month ago. That witness was a woman.
7: Miss Forbes... Sorry to disturb you like this, but we'd like to ask some questions about that liquor store killing you, Witness, a little over a month ago.
8: Well, I told the police everything I knew about it then.
7: Yeah, we know, but maybe you
6: wouldn't mind telling us again, huh? Oh.
8: No, I guess not. I, well, I've been trying to forget it to tell the truth. It was pretty terrible, and I, I really didn't see so very much because I was awful scared. I
6: understand, but try to describe again just what happened, will you?
8: Well, it was about ten o'clock at night. I was walking down the street toward home when I realized I was all out of cigarettes. Well, I was right in front of the liquor store then, so I went in. The clerk was behind the counter, and there were two men standing there arguing.
9: What's the idea of changing your mind? I thought we was going to get bourbon. No, let's get the wine. I want bourbon. Gosh, too much wine's good enough. The rest of them want bourbon, too. We better talk to them. Well, okay. We'll be back when we make up our mind, mister.
8: Two men walked out of the store, and the clerk smiled at me and shrugged his shoulders. I bought a pack of cigarettes and turned to leave. But just then, the two men came back in again, and each of them had a gun in his hand.
10: This is a stick-up, mister.
8: The clerk just sort of crumpled at the floor. I couldn't believe my eyes, but that's just how it happened. The men said this is a stick-up, and then they shot him right away.
9: Get over against the wall, lady, or you'll look the same. One of them punched the no-sale on
8: the cash register. I was shaking, so I almost caved in. He scooped the money out of the drawer and stuffed it into his pocket. And then... And the other one went over to where the liquor clerk was lying face down, he knelt down beside the clerk, and he put his gun against the clerk's spine. <laughs> and they both ran out of the store. It was terrible. That clerk—he was lying there, helpless and wounded, and they—they
6: they delivered Yeah, oh, Miss
7: Forbes, I understand. Oh, Miss Forbes, uh, you said that both of the men had guns.
8: Yes. One of the guns was black, and the other was sort of, sort of fancy looking.
6: What do you mean, Miss Forbes? Well,
8: it was real shiny.
6: Nickel-plated?
8: I wouldn't know about that, but it was shiny.
6: There were two guns, huh? Yes. Well, now about the men themselves.
8: Well, I, I was so scared their faces just didn't register with me. The one who... who shot the clerk in the back was sort of stocky. It's about the best I can do.
7: Well, you mentioned in the report that one of the men was left-handed.
8: Yes, I do remember that.
7: Uh-huh. Now, look, Miss Forbes, this
6: is very important to us. One of the men was a redhead.
8: Redhead? Why, no, I didn't see any redhead.
7: Skipper, me and Joe's run right smack into a stone wall on this thing.
5: What's the complication?
6: Well, there's more than one, Ed. In the first place, we know that the forty-four Smith & Wesson was used in both shootings. But the descriptions of the men involved don't check.
7: Police officer Emerson said he thought the man that, uh... Uh, that shot him and Williams outside the trapdoor cafe was a tall, left-handed redhead. Said there's something funny about his nose.
5: You think Williams got a better look at him? Well, probably did,
7: but Williams isn't strong enough to talk yet. a girl that witnessed the liquor store killing a month ago said that one of those men was left-handed. But she said neither of them was a redhead. And on top of all that, now we've got two guns to worry about. The girl
6: mentioned two guns, so we checked the autopsy report on that liquor clerk. And Ed, the bullet that actually killed him came from a thirty-two twenty, not a forty-four Smith and Wesson.
5: That fact didn't get any publicity at the time, did it? No, it didn't. Okay, we won't give it any publicity now either. Well, lie down. it's just the forty-four Smith and Wesson we're after, because whoever owns the thirty-two twenty finds out it's hot, we'll never get it. Anything else?
7: Well, we sent teletypes to all outlying stations in neighboring cities, told them if they get any red-headed suspects, no matter what charge they got them on, to hold them for questioning.
5: Yeah. Now, how about this 3220, the actual murder weapon? And he leads on it.
7: We've got one, Ed. We've been checking the records,
6: and we discovered that four hours after the liquor store killing, a taxi driver in the neighborhood was shot
5: and robbed.
7: Slug was pretty well mashed, but there was enough to tell it was from a 3220. So we're going over to question the taxi driver now.
5: Good. Well, I think you boys are on the right trail. So far, what we've got is mostly unrelated facts, but sooner or later, those facts have all got to tie in at some point along the line. Find that point. Yeah, find
6: the point. Find the tie-in. Well, Ben and I went over to see the taxi driver, a guy who was living on borrowed time. Yeah, it was about two o'clock in the morning when it happened. I got a call to pick up a fare near 105th in Avalon, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got there, somebody came over, pulled open my cab door and said, this is a sticker. Then Bluey, you let me have it. Just like that, huh?
7: Yeah, just like that. Same deal as others, Joe. Itchy trigger finger. Yeah.
6: Did you get any kind of a look at the
7: fellow? No, 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 no. it's too dark. Uh uh-huh. hey, According to the report, do
6: Yeah, that's right. Right. Oh, you, you maybe we to come, I'm still alive. Uh-huh. I tell you, pal, it's something you seen up a bad move, you, know? you know. I'm, I'm carrying a few silver dollars with me, nine of them to be exact. So I decided well, i, decide I just, just stick them in my, my breast pocket. Well, Mr. That, that just that saved my... This, this bug hit the with the doctor's. It's one for the book, huh? Yeah. Well, thank you, Mike. I said, we will trouble finding it today. you today. Where did the stand you operate out, out of last month? Oh, look, look, uh, only not at my
5: usual stand. I'm not driving heck no more. Oh. Uh-huh. After what happened are you, you kidding? No, I don't want to push, push my luck any, any further than it's been pushed.
11: Yeah, yeah I figure you of know, it. Uh-huh. Oh.
6: At time, Ben and I went to figure it We were getting nowhere fast. We had a few informants around, but they hadn't come up with any leads. Oh, ben and I followed all the teletypes that poured in. We just got back from Santa Ana, where we'd been questioning a red-headed suspect. And we'd flopped in the squad room when he'd back at the trans door open.
5: Hi. Pomarillo, got him a minute? Yes. Yes. him. Any luck with the
7: Sun and the Redheads? No, none at all. Mm. Well, I guess you haven't heard the latest. We just now got back in
5: town, Early this morning, another car driver got shot. At. What? And came up with his tag. Opened the door. So, this is up. Shot at him. That well, went through one one leg, the other, the other, but the driver managed to start his cab and drove over, over to a cafe called Old Infant from there.
7: Oh, uh, boys with the cover slug?
5: Yeah. Came to the same for 44 Smith and Weston Slug, was used to two jobs.
6: the cab driver ever get a little look at the gun?
5: Yeah. No. Oh, it was a stocky guy. It was not red, red, red-headed it wasn't stocky. It's all that the drummer knows. That's
7: great. Yeah, for this, this is beginning to sound like a guns of the money club. You reckon by that them then that out? Well,
5: no, they're passing the around we're working together The way they operate Indian kids Yeah, the trigger a
7: the happy little loot, then
5: killing apparently not a business to them it's a pleasure, too. That's why we've got the trip to them Come over here. All right. Here, right. here. Take a look, at this, Miss Matt. Uh huh. Here's the trap, eh? And then over here's a little liquor store. Down on with f- cab to drive. Sh- 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 here's here's with it. Mm-hmm. All of the shooting things have t- taken place within an area of tens and square, square blocks. Okay. Tonight we're going to th- throw a case around on that hole. Good. It'll go into a perfect 10 at 10 p.m.
6: At 9 p.m., cars and officers started drifting into the, the area by, by two threes. Editing, when Baxter and Ben and I arrived, the whole area was sewed up tighter than
5: it to take. All set, sir? All set, sir? We got a primary line, line. This is a secondary line. Let's make, make a proof. We'll pick him up as a secondary. Okay. Friday and Romero here will cruise around the area with, with me. So we're working him.
6: Every car in the area was shaken and out. The same process was, was all allowed on all persons on foot. The blockade went on all night. By the end of that time, we brought in 217 suspects. 26 of them were redheads. What's
7: your name? Henry L. Wagner. Where do you work? Lombard. Which one? First stop.
6: What time did you get to work last night? About...
12: Six, guess.
6: What'd you do then? At some dinner. Where? Uh, Paris. Then what? Shut the little
13: pool. Look, I tell you, I ain't done nothing.
7: No, no, no. Let's, let's go back to the, the day before you, yesterday. you
6: that. And that, that's the way it went all day long. What we should shut question that? after question and at them, working them gradually back, back to the, the days on which the shootings had taken place. When it, when it was all over, we got that sick man, man wanted, wanted in other cities on various discharges. We got quite an assortment of guns and knives. But as far as the shooters were concerned,
5: we got nothing. Well, well I guess that's the last of them. Oh,
7: I was running out of questions there at the end.
5: You, you two boys better go on home and get some, some sleep. Well...
7: I was kind of
6: figuring on checking back over the reports to see if we might have overlooked something.
5: I said go on home. Two boys have been in at it for the 32 hours straight. Look at you. You're both so groggy. You can hardly stand up. You need sleep. And it's uh, 4 p.m. now. No. Don't come back until 10 p.m. <laughs>
6: When I walked into the squad room at ten, and Ben was already there, an informant had just phoned in a new lead. He told Ben he'd heard about a gang that had been hanging out down around the Devere Bungalow Court in the South End of town. We knew that the Devere was close to the Trapdoor Cafe, so we went over to talk to the man. Joe, I've been meaning to ask you.
7: You, you checked on how Williams is getting along?
6: Yeah, yeah I did. did. I, I called all the hospitals this afternoon. It's going to be VR, all right.
7: Oh, that's fine. Here, here we are. Yeah, my manager's office. Still got a little light Yeah,
6: I'm Sergeant Friday, police police. This, this is Sergeant Romero. Yeah, We'd like a little information, Jim.
9: Why sure, sure. Come in.
6: Thank you.
9: What can I do for
6: you? Well, did
7: you hear anything about a gang that hangs out down around here anywhere?
9: Gang?
7: Well, no. Uh, how about your tenants here? Any of them ever been in trouble, to your knowledge?
9: No. This ain't exactly the best neighborhood in town. We try to keep things under control. Once in a while, one of them get out of line, but when, when that happens, we even him out
6: of here. You even anybody out lately?
9: Yeah, I did, did. The phone is his wife. A few weeks ago, they had a fight with one of the bungalows. She took, took a shot at him, but she, she missed. Partly by the name of Stuba, Carl Stuba. What
7: did this Stuba bl- look like?
9: Oh, sort of the tall, skinny.
7: Was, was
6: he a redhead? head? No. Now, uh, we'd like to take a look at that bungalow, though, that he lived in. Sure,
9: sure, sure. Help, help yourself. Down in the end, there. Number for five. So, go vacant.
6: Well, I guess that does it. Stupid it didn't leave us a thing behind. Matter of fact, we don't have any meaning to prove that this stupid was tied in at all. We're only working on our
7: Hey, Joe, look. Where? Oh, on the wall there. Just for the window. Oh,
6: yeah. Yeah, that plaster there, it's newer than the rest. You got a knife? Uh, sure, sure, I
7: have, boy. And I'm carving. That manager would be awful unhappy if it's me if he is here. Yeah, he would. would. Yeah, my... my... Hey, Joe, here, here it is. A slug. A, a plastered right over
6: Okay. Okay, dig it out, Nothing. let's hope it matches. <laughs> it matched. The slug from the wall came from the same 444 Smith, Smith and Wesson that had been used in the other shootings. So now we had a name him to work on, on Carl Stuba. But he'd done a good job of dropping out of
7: sight. Well, the next day, Ben thought he had another lead. i just been talking to another informant, Joe. He says he heard that there's a fella down in that neighborhood been trying to sell a gun lately. What
6: kind of a gun?
7: Nickel-plated with steer horn handles. Nickel-plated?
6: Maybe that's our four forty four Smith & Wesson. Maybe. Did the
7: informant know who this man was? Said that the fellas' name was Alonzo. Yeah, Al- Alonzo who? who? Yes, it's Alonzo. That's all I
6: you Now, now we had two names. Stuba and Alonzo. But but no men were going to go with them. So we went back, back to, to make, making the rounds of the substations and interviewing red-headed suspects. We, t- we took a few of them to Williams, who was home from the hospital by now, but... He couldn't identify any of them as was the man who shot him. Still, we kept checking. Finally, we got around to another seventy seventh Street station. We questioned the suspects that they were holding there, and we just started to leave when one of the officers
7: called us.
4: What is the charge? Holding somebody else? You might want to look again.
7: Redhead head? No. What's the charge? Suspicion of
1: burglary.
6: Small Yeah. Oh, I don't know. What do you think, Batman?
4: What's
7: special about him?
4: He lives in the same neighborhood where those shootings took place.
7: All right. Where are you got him? Adam? Down here.
6: Did not admit anything?
1: No. He's pretty surly. Here we
7: are. Thanks.
6: Hi. hi.
9: What do you want?
6: I- I'm Sergeant Friday. This is Sergeant R- Romero. I'd like to ask you a few qu- questions.
9: Look, I already t- told the other cops all I know. I d- didn't steal my radio, I'm that jerk.
6: What's your name?
9: We've been through all of that one.
6: Come on, what's your name?
9: Jackson. On Alonzo Jackson.
6: Al- Alonzo. I looked at Ben and Ben looked at me. This could be the the Alonzo who had been trying to peddle that Smith Smith and Wesson. Ben and I both knew here was one one suspect we'd have to be real real careful with.
7: Alonzo, um... Looking to the record, Just this, this burglary you're suspected that took place on the night of the 27th? Look, well, look, how many times do I have
9: to tell you guys that I didn't have anything to do with it? You got an
7: alibi for that night night? Sure, I got an alibi. I
9: was out
7: with a couple of my friends, I can tell you. What's your friend's name, Lonzo? One
9: of them's
7: Cranley the others is Stuba. Stuba, the guy who
6: used to live in the bungalow court. Well, we told Alonzo that so we would have to produce his two, two friends to give, give him an, an alibi for, for the burglary charge, and he'd be bit. He, he went with us, and he pointed out where, where Stuba was, was living now. No wonder we had, hadn't been able to find him. It was a little shack at the back of a, of a lot behind two, two houses. We, we thought it, it was a chicken concooper at first. We took Alonzo back, back to the station, and then we picked, picked up Stuba. But he was so surprised to see this and not very happy. We took him in. in. Next, Alonzozo gave us Crandall's address.
8: Yeah,
6: Miss Mister Crandall in. No, no. Will he be back soon?
8: I don't know. Who are you,
7: Sergeant F- Friday? Any sergeant in Rummimero Police? What
8: do you want with
7: him? Oh, oh nothing important, lady. We, we just warned him as a witness.
8: Oh.
6: Well, I don't know no, just when they will be back. Probably in an hour or two. Okay, thanks. We went down the street away, and we staked out in the car. We sat there for about five hours, and then Ben
7: nudged me in the ribs. Thank you, Joe. Uh-huh. Joe, take a look. Coming along the side of the
6: Yeah, yeah. And he's got got red red hair. Come on. Crandall.
11: Huh?
6: Your name, name Crandall?
11: Who are you?
7: Friday, Eddie the for Police. Police? What do you want? With me? I I, I haven't done nothing. Well, then you've got nothing in the world to worry about. Come on.
6: We questioned Crandall for an hour But he wouldn't give him an inch Denied everything Then we put him in a car And we drove over to Officer Williams' house I've Ben in the living room with Randall, While I went in with Williams' bedroom Hello,
1: Sir Sarge
6: Hi, Williams How you doing?
14: A little bit better It's
6: fine Look, look, we've got another redhead outside. Bringing me man in. Okay. All
14: right, all right, Crandall. come on in here.
6: Who's this in there? Why do you mean, me over here? Come on in here. How about it, Williams?
9: That's the guy. No, I'm That's not. That's the I... guy that shot me.
6: Well, Crandall.
4: No! Yeah. I... It It was an accident. I didn't mean to shoot him. It was an accident.
6: Once Crandall got started, he talked his head off. He also admitted being in on the liquor store killing, but insisted he was only the lookout. We took him back to the station and got his whole story down on a tape recorder. Yeah, he was left-handed. Then we went back to Alonzo, who didn't know we had Crandall's confession. We met the chief in the hall outside the room where they were holding Alonzo. You about ready to tie the knot?
7: Oh, hope so, Chief. But Alonzo hasn't given any yet. And we still haven't found those
5: guns. We've got one of them. Which one? The Smith & Wesson bought that one ten minutes ago. Said he left it with his girl. A couple of the boys are on their way over to get it now. That's good, Ed. That leaves just the thirty-two twenty.
6: You haven't mentioned the thirty-two twenty to Alonzo, have you? No. He still thinks we're after that Smith and & Wesson, and that's the way we're going to play it right now.
9: Go ahead. Look, how much longer are you guys going to hold me here? Didn't you check with those friends of mine?
7: Well, so we got a tip that you've been trying to sell a gun lately. A gun? Yeah, 44 Smith and Wesson. Oh.
9: Now, it's not true.
7: That Smith and Wesson's been using a couple of robbery
6: jobs this month, and we yeah. get you your gun.
9: That's a lie.
6: Any proof of that?
9: Why, yeah. Sure I got proof of that. Uh, I used to have a gun, but it wasn't a Smith and Wesson. Look, if I tell you where it is, that ought to convince you, shouldn't
7: it? It'll help things.
9: Okay. I sold it to a neighbor of mine. He gave me seven bucks. I'll give you his
7: address. You sure it's not a Smith & Wesson?
9: Sure, I'm sure. It's a 3220.
6: Yeah, it worked. We went to the neighbor's address, and he admitted having bought the 3220, but said he'd lent it to a friend who'd never returned it. The friend had hocked the gun to a barber. The barber gave him 15 bucks and a haircut for it. We finally got it from the barber, and we came back to the
7: station. I'm all set, Joe. I'll be in the next room. Just give me
6: the nut. Okay. Hello, Alonzo.
9: Hey, you got the gun?
6: Yeah, we got the gun.
9: Well, now maybe you'll believe I'm on the level. Okay, if I go now?
6: I guess we won't be able to hold you here
9: much longer. You can say that again, brother. You got to saved a lot of time for you to listen to what I've been trying to tell you all along.
6: I guess you're right, Alonzo.
9: Sure, I'm right.
3: Okay folks, I just love Jack Webb no matter what he played. I, I really enjoyed his acting. I think he died way too soon. Not sure what killed him though. Um but anyway, um this next one that I've got is one that I like real well. I, I used to listen to him a lot and then I I forgot about him until I ran across him again the other day. He's called the Fat Man. And uh, is that is that um, is that anything related to
1: Jake and the Fat Man? No. No, okay.
3: He's just himself. He kind of seems like he had a hard time getting around sometimes, but <laughs> but he's a pretty good investigator. Oh, okay. Uh, and so, um, but anyway, this episode is called Murder Send the Christmas Card.
15: There he goes into that drugstore. He's stepping on the scales.
4: Weight 239 pounds. Fortune, danger.
15: Who is it? The Fat Man. In this business of solving crimes, the detective runs into two types of criminals, the old-time pro and the first offender. The old-timer with his record, fingerprints, and well-known pattern of procedure is always at a disadvantage, and by hard work and the help of the stool pigeon or so, he is usually caught. Your amateur, on the other hand, becomes the detective's $64 question. He has no record, no pattern, and is unknown in the underworld. That makes it real tough, because you've got to work in the dark, and believe me, that's not fun, especially when you're dealing with a murderer. And now, here's the fat man in Murder Sends a Christmas Card. It must have been about 5.30 on a cold, snowy afternoon when I saw this girl come out of Kelly's Pool Hall on Carter Street. She wasn't exactly what you'd call beautiful, but she was nice-looking, slim, neatly dressed, and certainly not the type of girl who hangs out in pool halls. She stood on the sidewalk for a second, as if undecided where to go, and then started across the street. Maybe she didn't hear the car coming, or maybe she didn't care. The driver tried to stop, but the street was slick. I took four running steps, and I dived. Oh. It was a good tackle, and the snow eased our fall and helped us slide clear, just so the cars could died Oh,
16: I didn't hear it. Didn't I... your
15: mother ever tell you to look up and down before you cross the street? You're a lucky lady. Oh, yes.
16: Yes, thank you. I... I must have been thinking of something else. I... I just didn't hear the car. Here, let me help
15: you up. Are you all right?
16: Oh, yes, I think so. Oh. oh, my ankle.
15: Is it spraying?
16: No, I don't really think so. I must have turned it. I... I'll be all right. Thank you very much.
15: Oh, I'll take it easy. You're not going to get very far on that ankle.
16: No, please. I, I must get home. I, I left my little boy with a neighbor. I must get back. Okay, I'll take
15: you home. Here, lean on my arm. Oh,
16: no, no, please. I, I live a long way from here. Sam goes to that pool room because it's near where he works.
15: Uh-huh, but uh, let me get a cab and take you home. Oh,
16: no, no. I, Sam wouldn't like it. Who's if... Sam? Your little boy? No, my husband. That's why I came out. I, I was looking for him.
15: Is that why you went in the pool room?
16: Yes, I, I thought he might be inside. Sometimes he does go there. Oh, I'm so worried.
15: Why, is he out of work?
16: No, he, he has a job. Not a very good one, but he is working.
15: Then why did you think he'd be in the pool room?
16: Well, this is his day off. but Oh, that isn't the reason that I...
15: You're not making much sense. You didn't get that worried look just because your husband might be playing pool with the boys on his day off. Now, don't misunderstand, but I'm just trying to be helpful.
16: I suppose I'm being silly, but I was worried. I I was afraid... Afraid of of what? No, it's nothing. I have no right to burden you with my trouble.
15: Maybe talking will make it easier.
16: Oh, you are very kind. My name's Myra Davis. Well, my husband's job doesn't pay much, just enough for us to get along on and... Sam gets discouraged. He feels he can give us the things that we need.
15: That's always tough, but it's really nothing to worry so about.
16: Well, that isn't why I'm so worried. This morning it all came to a head. Sam lost his temper and we had an argument and he left. He said he was going out to get some money. A funny look on his face when he went out. and When he came back this afternoon, I, I got worried. I... I was afraid.
15: But he might get in trouble.
16: Yes, I, I thought he might do something wrong. I, Oh, don't you see? Sure,
15: sure, I see. But while we're talking, I'm going to take you home. And who knows, maybe I can help Sam get a better job. Hey, taxi! The Davises lived nearly two miles from the neighborhood of the pool hall. The apartment wasn't exactly what you'd call classy, but it was neat and clean. Just as we opened the door, the telephone rang.
16: Hello? 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 They hung up. Oh, well, maybe for Sam. Maybe. Maybe he found a better job.
15: Maybe. Maybe. I hope so.
16: But why would he call? Why wouldn't he come home? and Tell me.
15: Now, don't get upset again. You'd better go get your little boy. Oh, yes.
16: Yes, of course.
15: Are you sure your ankle's okay now?
16: Yes, it's much better now.
15: In that case, I'll be running along. Oh,
16: thank you so much, Mr. Runyon. I do hope you can help Sam.
15: Well, I'll do all I can. In the meantime, you cheer up. Take this car to mine. Give it to Sam and tell him to drop in and see me tomorrow. Maybe I can help him so much. Skip it, sweetheart. I'm an old boy scout. This is my good deed for today. There really wasn't any reason why I should have been worrying about this guy Sam Davis and his wife Myra. He was probably a nice young fellow down in his luck and bitter. Maybe he was headed for trouble because of it, but, well, it wasn't any of my business. Besides, it was time for dinner, and I was hungry. It was cold and snowy outside, but I couldn't get them out of my mind. Maybe I was a sap, but I got a cab and rode all the way back to Kelly's Bar and Pool Room. It was snowing harder than ever when I walked in.
4: Yeah, what'll it be, mister? Give me a
15: beer. By the way, do you know a fellow named Sam Davis?
4: Yeah. Sure, I know Sam. Has he been in here this afternoon? You're a friend of his? Yeah. he you are. Yeah, Sam was in a little while ago. How long ago? Oh, well, let's see. It was after his wife was here looking for him. Uh, she come in about an hour and a half ago, but Sam wasn't here then. He come in soon after she left. I remember because I gave him the message that she was looking for him. Oh, then he went home? No. No. He went to the phone booth over there to call her. Said he'd got himself a job tonight, so he'd be late getting home. I thought he had a job. He has, but uh, he's going to pick up a little Christmas money by driving a truck or something for the guys he was with. He said it would pay good. Uh, but them guys didn't look exactly like trucking magnets to me, though. What do you mean? Oh, nothing except... Uh, well, since you're a friend of Sam's, just between you and I, uh, they didn't look like Sam's type, uh, Know what I mean? Yeah, I was
15: afraid of that. You didn't know the guys he was with?
4: No, but uh, I get the idea Sam owed one of them some money. Uh, They sat back there and talked for a while. Uh, I think they was arguing with Sam. Finally, they get up and all of them left. How long ago was that? Oh, not long. Uh, Maybe five minutes before you come in.
15: Okay, thanks. See you again. Merry Christmas. I left the pool room and walked east toward the subway six blocks away. It was getting colder. The street was one of those extra-wide warehouse-lined streets, dark, and deserted except for a small cigar store a few feet ahead of me. There was a telephone booth inside. I went in and dialed Davis's number. Hello? This is Brad Runyon, Mrs. Davis. Has Sam come home yet? Oh, no. No, he
16: hasn't, Mr. Runyon. I... I do wish you would. Now, don't worry.
15: I had an idea for Sam, but I'll tell him tomorrow. Oh,
16: you're very kind.
15: And don't worry. Sam will probably be along in a little while. Goodbye now. I went back out into the dark snow-covered street and tried to forget about Sam Davis. I was four long blocks from the subway when a truck skidded around the corner a block ahead and rolled to a stop in front of a warehouse on the far side of the street. The door of the truck opened and three men got out. They seemed to be in a hurry. One of the men unlocked a small door beside the big rolling one used for trucks and the three went inside. I walked ten yards farther towards the subway and the rolling door of the warehouse went up with a bang. I saw the flash of a gun in the black open pit of the warehouse. I jumped sideways into a doorway and pressed against the wall. Two men ran suddenly out of the warehouse. One was bareheaded and the other wore a cap. They both had guns in their hands. A third staggered behind them and toppled headlong on the snow-covered walk. The guy wearing the cap stopped when his pal fell to the walk. But the first man ran to the truck and drove off. The guy with the cap on tried to make the truck, but it was too late. Just then, a cop came running down the street and a guy still on his feet started to run. He forgot how slippery the street was, but it saved his life. <laughs> His feet slid out from under him, just as the cop fired and the bullet hit a window. Maybe he thought he'd hit the gunman. Anyway, he waited a split second too long before trying to fire again. The man in the cap turned over while he was still sliding along in the snow. He only fired once. The cop's arm flew up over his head. He fell forward on his face. I grabbed my gun and moved quickly out into the street, but the man in the cap was already nearing the corner of the next block. It was too dark and I missed. By the time I reached the car, he was gone. I tried to follow his footprints in the snow, but he'd gone into the street and I lost him in the slush. So I went back to the warehouse. Evidently, nobody else had heard the shots. The cop and the third gunner were still where they'd fallen. There was a police call box next to the small door of the warehouse. I opened it and asked Lieutenant McKenzie of police headquarters.
4: Lieutenant McKenzie speaking.
15: This is Ronion Mac.
4: Ah, hello, Brad. I thought this call was from one of
15: my men. The cop who ought to be making this call is lying in the gutter across the street.
4: What's happened?
15: A hold-up that went sour. There's a gunman on the sidewalk and a watchman inside, both carrying lead. Two of the stick-up boys got away. You'd better get down here with an ambulance and a prowl car. Where are you? Colby Street, about three blocks from the river. Okay. I close the call box. My eyes traveled back along the sidewalk where the man in the cap had slipped in the snow and done his fancy shooting.
9: Something bright and shiny caught my eye.
15: It was lying on the sidewalk where the snow had been scraped away by the man's fall. I went over and picked it up. It was a chromium-plated cigarette lighter. It obviously had fallen from the man's pocket when he went down. I struck a match and looked closer at it. There was engraving on the back that said, To Sam with love from Myra. I put the lighter in my pocket, then crossed the street. Hugging the shadows and walking fast, I went back to the cigar store two blocks away. The proprietor dozed behind the counter and a radio was playing. That's why he hadn't heard the shooting. I looked at my wristwatch. Twenty minutes of eight. Less than ten minutes had passed since I'd left the telephone booth. I closed the booth door and dialed Sam Davis's number for the second time that night. Hello? This is Brad Runyon again, Mrs. Davis.
16: Oh, it's all right now, Mr. Runyon. All right? Yes, Sam came home. There wasn't anything to worry about at all. He he thought that he might have a job tonight, but he turned it down and came home.
15: He turned it down? Yes. I talked to you less than ten minutes ago, Mrs. Davis. Sam hadn't come in then.
16: Oh, no, no, I know that. He came in right after I talked to
15: you. Put him on the phone a minute. I want to talk with him.
16: Oh, he's not here now.
15: Where is he? You mean he came in ten minutes ago and has left again?
16: Well, yes. Why, what is it, Mr. Runyon? What's wrong? Did he see where he was going? No. He had a phone call that seemed to upset him. And when I told him about you, how you promised to get him a better job, he's, he seemed to feel better. He put his cap on. Now, wait a minute.
15: Did you say, cap?
16: I, well, yes, Sam, always wears a cap. He told me not to worry, that he had to settle something, that he'd be back again in a little while.
15: Then he left there just a minute ago. He
16: just got out of the door and your call came. I see. What's wrong, Mr.
15: Ruggins? Tell me the truth, Mrs. Davis, it's important.
16: Truth? But I am telling you the truth.
15: Sam didn't come home, did he? You got a phone call from him five minutes ago.
16: No, no, he didn't call. He was here. He's only just left. He
15: called and he told you to say he'd been there.
16: No, no, he was here. I swear he was. What is it? What's happened?
15: I'm sorry, Missus Davis, but there's been a murder. Oh, no, no. The man who did the shooting was wearing a cap, and he dropped a cigarette lighter with the engraving "To Sam with Love from Myra" on it.
16: Oh, no. no.
15: You gave Sam that lighter, didn't you?
16: Oh yes. But he was here, I tell you.
15: He couldn't have been there. Your apartment is two miles from here. <laughs> I stepped out of the cigar store. Two prowl cars and an ambulance stood in front of the warehouse. Four cops stood around in the glare of a searchlight. I should have gone up and joined them, but I didn't. Somehow I wasn't quite sure. There was the lighter, the man in the cap, Myra's scared, flustered voice. It should have added up, but somehow it didn't. Maybe it was because I didn't want it to. I headed back to Kelly's pool room. As I walked, I brought out Davis's lighter and looked at it. I realized I was holding more than just a lighter in my hand. I was holding a man's life and a woman's happiness. That's a lot to hold in your hands. I quit thinking about it and remembered that I was a licensed detective. As I entered Kelly's, the bartender glanced up and nodded. I took a seat where I could watch the door and also the game of pool. The clock above the bar said a quarter to eight. The door to the street opened and a man wearing a cap came in. He was young, not more than twenty-five or six. Slim, about five feet ten, neatly dressed, and rather good-looking. He looked round the room as if he were searching for somebody. Then he reached in his pocket and took out a pack of cigarettes. From force of habit, his hand reached toward the pocket for a match or lighter and stopped as if he remembered. I knew it was Sam Davis. He turned to the bartender and walked toward him. I took the lighter from my pocket and followed him across the floor. Got a match, Joe? Oh, hello, Sam. Sure. Here you are, keeping Thanks. Uh, never mind the match, Sam. I'll light it for you. Huh? Here you are. Why, thanks. Where did you get that light? I thought you might be interested. Who are you? Never mind that. I want to talk to you.
17: Talk to me? What about?
4: Is there a room around here, Joe, where we can have a private talk? Right back there beyond the tables. It's the boss's office, but he ain't in tonight. Nobody with any brains will be working tonight. I ain't got no brains. Come on, Sam. It ain't
15: locked. Just go right in. Okay. Okay, mister. What's the pitch? Sit down.
17: <sighs>
15: Who are you, and where did you get that lighter? I found the lighter where you dropped it tonight. Where I dropped it, I didn't drop it. It's no good, Sam. The cop died. The cop died.
17: Hey, what are you talking about?
15: Where were you at seven thirty tonight?
17: I was home. I can prove it by my wife.
15: I've already talked to your wife. She can't prove anything.
17: But she saw me. She can tell you. She's was...
15: your wife, Sam. She loves you. You shouldn't have let her down like that.
17: Listen, you gotta believe me. I don't know who you are or what you're talking about. You, you said a cop died. I don't know nothing about it. I, I didn't go with him. I swear I didn't.
15: So you didn't go with him, huh? Eh? D- what, what I mean is I, I don't... That know. doesn't sound like you don't know anything about us.
17: Who are you? Are you a cop?
15: I'm Brad Runyon. The fat man? That's right.
17: Myra told me about you just a little while ago.
15: When you called her on the phone?
17: I didn't call her. I went home. I left there about 25 minutes ago.
15: Why did you go out again so soon, then? I, well, I, I know it'll sound screwy. It all
17: sounds screwy, but there was something I had to attend to, something I had to explain.
15: Something like shooting a cop?
17: No, 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 no. I tell you, I, I didn't shoot anybody. Now, listen to me. you got to believe me. you, you got to tell me, that lighter of mine, where did it come from?
15: I saw the stick-up tonight. I was standing in a doorway across the street. The man who shot the cop was wearing a cap like yours. He was your size, and he dropped this lighter when he slipped in the snow.
17: It wasn't me. I swear it wasn't, Runyon. I didn't even know... Keep
15: talking. I'd like to believe you, Sam. I liked your wife. I heard about that kid of yours.
17: Now, listen, Runyon, I don't know what your angle is in this, or why you're interested, but... It looks like I'm in a jam.
15: A big jam.
17: Now, look, I'll, I'll come clean with you if, if, if you'll help me.
15: Keep talking.
17: Well, the job I've got's no good, see? I don't make any dough. It, it's hardly enough to get along. Well, I watched the bills pile up and Christmas was coming. Other guys give their wife and kids nice presents. I couldn't...
15: I know all that. What, what happened I, tonight?
17: Well, there were some guys. I met them a couple of days ago. Got in a pool game with them, one of them. I thought I'd win a little money, but instead I lost. I couldn't pay, so I gave this guy my lighter.
15: You've got to do better than that, sir. But it's the truth. That was two days ago. You said something about going with them tonight. I'm coming to that. Now, you, you've got
17: to believe this. This afternoon, I ran into them again. They, they said that they, they had a job I could do.
15: What was the job? It was
17: driving a truck for them. They offered me a hundred bucks.
15: Well, that's a lot of money for driving a truck. Now,
17: not for this kind of driving, and I needed the money. But I've never been in trouble, so I, I backed out. I went home instead. About five minutes after I got home, a call came from one of the guys. He told me to meet him here right away, so I left and came back.
15: It's not so good, Sam.
17: It's true, I tell you, all of it. You don't believe it, do you?
15: Can you prove you went home, Sam? I mean by anybody else other than your wife. Why
17: why, no, I I, I didn't see anybody. But I did go home, I swear it, Runyon.
15: Hey, what are you gonna do? Keep sitting down, Sam. This gun's loaded.
17: Now wait, Runyon. Who are you calling? Please No, no, don't do it,
15: please. Don't you see? Shut up. Get me Lieutenant McKenzie. Tell him Brad Runyon is calling.
17: Now, give me a break. I I know it looks bad, but there must be some way I can prove I'm telling the truth. That's that's the way guys get railroaded, don't you see? All
15: I I can see, Sam, is that there's been a murder. Maybe you were railroaded. Hello? Hello, Mac? Never mind where I've been. I'm in Kelly's pool hall on the corner of Carter and Calvi Street. And I think I've got something for you in connection with the killing of the cop tonight. I'll explain when you get here, so hurry.
17: You're not going to railroad me, not a person. I...
15: That was a mistake, Sam. I picked Sam up and propped him in a chair. There was a slight cut on the side of his mouth where my fist had connected. Otherwise, he was okay. But something had fallen out of his pocket. A small white card. I bent over, picked the card up, and looked at it. It read, Brad Runyon, Private Investigator. It was the same card I'd given his wife when I took her home. He had been home. I looked at my watch. Mackenzie wouldn't waste their time. Sam Davis was headed for the chair on its I acted fast. They'd never believed the story of the card. I slipped it in my pocket. There was a water cooler in the corner. I filled a paper cup and threw it in Sam's face. Come on, Sam. Come on, wake up. Huh? Huh? What? What happened? I hit you. Come on, get up. Oh, I, I told you the truth, Runyon, I swear it. I skip can't... it, skip it. Now listen to me, Sam. We haven't got much time. Nobody's going to railroad you.
17: What do you mean?
15: You just Let me them. talk. We've got to act fast. The cops will be here any minute.
17: Yeah, but wait a second. I don't understand. I
15: said, can... listen. If you love that wife and kid of yours, you'll do exactly what I tell you. Understand? Why did you... Never mind that. Now hit me. Hit you? That's what I said. Hit me as hard as you can right here on the drawer. Then open that window back there and wait for me to come to. And don't leave here. Whatever you do, stay. Now, come on and hit me. I don't get it. I'm not going to... Listen, Sam. So help me. If you don't do what I tell you, I'll slug you again. Now, hit me. Okay. (laughs) He was good. The fist exploded in my face, and I went out like a light. I don't know how long I was unconscious, and at first I couldn't remember where I was when I started snapping out of it. The back of my head ached, and my jaw felt like a flat iron had hit it. Gradually, a blurred face began making sense in front of my eyes. It was Mackenzie, Brad. Braddy, okay. Oh. Hello, Mac. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm okay. Oh, no, don't worry, Brad. I got him. He was still here when I came in. You got him? Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, there he is over there with the handcuffs on. Mm-hmm. There. So he's in on the hold-up, huh? Oh, hold it, Mac. That's not the guy.
4: Huh? Hey, what are you talking about? He was standing here right over you when I came in.
15: I said he's not the murderer.
4: But who is?
15: Well, I guess he got away after slugging me. Maybe he went right through the window back there. Ah, you must be slipping, Brad. It couldn't be that you're getting soft, could it? What about this guy here? Who's he? Oh, he's a friend of mine named Sam Davis. He was outside and must have come in to help when he heard the row. I guess he got luck too. Look at his jaw. Yeah. My golly, the mark on his jaw is almost good enough to be one of yours, Brad. Yeah. So you know this kid, huh? Yeah, he's a truck driver. Works for the Hinkle Company. Take the cuffs off him, Mac. And by the way, Sam, don't forget to drop in my office. I think I can fix you up with a better job. I'll be there.
17: And thanks a lot for
15: everything. Skaibbett. Come on, Mac. I can't get over you letting that guy slug you and get away. Don't worry about it. My friend Sam Davis and I will get him and the rest of the gang.
18: It's okay. Go on back
15: to your game. Well, it turned out to be a nice night after all, Mac.
17: Yeah, it's
15: pretty cold, but it stopped snowing. Well, I got to get back to headquarters. I'll walk along
4: with you. Hey, Brad, I don't get it. This is the first time in all the years I've known you that you ever let anybody clip you and get
15: away with it. Somebody's going to pay for it. I'll give you those guys for Christmas presents. Well, that sounds good, but how? How? With a card, Mac. A card? What are you talking about? Listen. Hear that? Sure, Christmas bells. But what about this card? What kind of a card? Let's call it a Christmas card, Mac. My own. And the best one I ever gave in my life. My life getting into trouble and getting out of it. But at the same time, I generally manage to get some other people in and out of trouble, too. Be seeing you again. Salon.
3: next one um he's a popular one in fact he's a favorite of mine sam spade um and his um and the name of this one is the death keeper and um what can i say i hope you like him
19: the adventures of sam spade detective brought to you by wild root cream oil hair tonic the non-alcoholic hair tonic that contains lanolin wild root cream oil Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first.
20: Sam's Bay Detective Agency.
0: It's me, sweetheart. Resin from not one, but two deathbeds.
20: Oh, Sam, I bet not. You wouldn't take that line down.
0: Oh, Effie, you made a joke.
21: Well, you did first, Sam.
0: I did not. Oh, you mean your actual word? Now, don't pin me down. Anyway, I was present at two dying declarations. Would you believe, Effie, that a man could say something that wasn't true at a time like that? Oh,
21: no. You mean a man would be lying on his deathbed?
0: Oh, Effie, you made a joke.
21: Oh, Sam,
20: now stop it. I don't know what you're It's all right,
0: Effie. I forgive you. You can atone by telling me how wonderful you think I am. I think you... That you may do when I arrive in a trice to dictate my report on the
19: deathbed caper. Dashiell Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer And creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye And William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama Join their talents to make your hair stand on end With the adventures of Sam Spade Presented by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair Tell me, mister How many times a day do you have to comb your hair? Not many, I'll bet, if you groom it right, first thing every morning, with Wild Root Cream Oil. For this famous hair tonic grooms your hair neatly and naturally, and helps it to stay that way throughout the day. Wild Root Cream Oil also relieves dryness and removes loose dandruff. With Wild Root Cream Oil, you don't have to keep combing your hair every two minutes. (laughs) That is, unless your gal can't resist running her hands through it. Get Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. And now, with Howard Duff starring as Spade, Wild Root brings to the air the greatest private detective of them all in the adventures of Sam Spade.
0: Brave hearts are asleep in the deep. I'm Sam,
18: you're a sailor.
0: Captain Sam, or the brig for you? You got your log book handy, gal?
18: Oh, yes, Captain.
0: So beware. You make it,
20: that's awful deep.
0: Be oh. a date, June twentieth, nineteen
3: forty-eight.
0: Oh, I have no shame. To uh, Marin County Sheriff's Office, San Rafael, California. Attention, Deputy Woodington from Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Subject, the uh, deathbed caper. Dear Bill, the uh, dawn came up like thunder out of Chinatown across the bay. In San Francisco, all we could see was fog. But on your side, it must have lifted briefly because somebody named Dan Starbuck managed to find his way to a phone booth, call me, and ask me to meet him at the Third Street Pier in Sausalito. I didn't see him when I first got there. I didn't even see the pier. It was too foggy. And on the glow of the neon lights in front of the Viking saloon, I saw a man who seemed to be waiting for somebody. He was a big guy with a good face, but plenty of worry on it. Mr. Spade? Yeah, Mr. Starbuck. Dan Starbuck. Come on down to the end of the pier, I'll explain as we go along. We gotta hurry. You act hot. You wanted for something? Well, not yet. What's the caper? Well, it... my brother's out there on his yacht, the Marguerite. He's dying. When he's dead, they may call it murder. I want to be there with a the witness. That's you. In case he has anything to say about who did it. Who did? They think I did. Did you? Well, honestly, I don't know. It happened night before last. I went out there to see him. We've hated each other for years. We've both been drinking, and we drank some more. Then there was a fight. I drew a blank somewhere. Next thing I knew, it was around midnight. I pulled myself together, went into his cabin. Gordon was lying there with his head all kicked. I realized I was covered with blood and I was holding something in my hand, big glass paperweight. I dropped it. I got out of there fast and swam ashore. I planned to tell you a different story, but that's it. You want the job at night. You think you'll make a deathbed statement that'll clear you and you want me for a witness? Yeah, that's it. You got a lot of guts. I'm hired. Good. Here. Alverson? Get down there. Halverson! Who's Halverson? Oh, he's a
19: boatman. He'll row us out.
4: Halverson? Hey, Nils? Danny?
19: Yeah. Is that you, Casino?
4: Sure. Can I do you some favor?
0: Uh, I want to go out to the Marguerite. I can't find Halverson anywhere.
4: Oh, I guess I can take you. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm you? sure. Oh. Uh, Sam
0: Spade, Del Casino. He's the boss of the Marguerite.
11: Glad to meet you. sir. am in front of Danny's. Hey, listen, Danny, you sure you want to go out there? Any reason why I shouldn't? Well, it's up to him. In his place, I would be on a freighter for China, way out there where the fog is more thicker.
0: No, it's all right, Casino. I know what I'm doing.
11: Well,
4: uh, your friend, you, you excuse me, your name? Spade. You pardon me, I better ask. The police don't want you for nothing? Not yet, but don't make a book on it. Uh, push us clear, Danny. All right.
14: this fog is causing in. but I can still see the lights from the Marguerite I wish we don't find her
0: but we did she was wearing clam diggers and off the shoulder t-shirt and was leaning against the rail as the dinghy pulled past the police launch and nestled in under the ladder of the yacht Del?
21: Del is that you?
4: Yes Mister Starbuck.
21: Who is that
4: with you? Keep quiet.
21: Dell, Dell, what are they saying ashore about... Oh, I thought
0: you... You're Mrs. Starbuck? Yes. I'm Sam Spade. I'm from San Francisco. I'm a detective. Your brother-in-law's in the boat.
21: You captured him?
0: He wants to come aboard.
21: He wants to? Why?
0: He's hoping your husband will say something to clear him before he dies. Is there any reason why he shouldn't come aboard?
21: Oh, there's every reason in the world why he shouldn't. The police are in there with my husband right now. Yeah? The doctor says there's a possibility that he may regain consciousness long enough to make a dying declaration. Mm Mm-hmm. If if he's face to face with Dan, there's no telling what he'll say. I wish Dan wouldn't... My my husband is dying.
0: Dan?
18: Yeah? What'd she say?
0: I don't know, but I think you'd better come aboard. He seemed almost delighted as he swung his weight up out of the dinghy and climbed the ladder. Del Casino, the bosun followed, wearing a puzzled expression that turned to fear as we entered the cabin. The yellow glare from the lamp swinging overhead was almost blinding to walk into out of the foggy night. The first thing I focused on was the bunk that held the dying man. His head was heavily bandaged, his skin was chalk white, and his lips were beginning to turn blue. The room was tense with waiting. Ranged around him in a semicircle with the supporting players: two doctors, one family type with a nurse, one police medic without, one sheriff with cigar, one police stenographer, female with pencil and notebook poised, nine tenths of a widow, and us. At eighteen minutes past seven, somebody moved. It was a dying man. The two doctors rushed forward, took his pulse and blood
6: pressure. The scuff. Adrenaline, three cc, calming one solution. Oh. oh.
11: All right, Sheriff. He's conscious now, but uh, you'd better hurry.
22: All right, bud. Mr. Starbuck. You can hear me all right? Take that down.
20: Can you hear me? Affirmative answer.
22: Now, Mr. Starbuck, we have to ask these questions. One, what is your name? Please try to answer. What is your name? Gordon Nempst. You got that?
23: What is your name? Gordon M. Star?
22: Yeah, that's close enough. Fill it in later. Now, Mr. Starbuck, where do you live? Uh, where do you live?
11: I'm dead.
22: You got that? 077, Marymount, Pasadena. Hey. Mm-hmm. Now, Mr. Starbuck, let's try a little harder. Hmm? This is a long one. Have you been injured? And what was the cause of your injury? Uh, yes. Hurts my... You got that? Affirmative. Now, the second part, what was the cause of your injury?
3: Head. Head on
22: head. Uh, Do you believe that you're about to die as a result of your injuries and have you no hope of recovery? (sighs) I know. No hope. Now, let's get to the point. Who inflicted said injuries? My. Mr. Starbuck, please, you haven't much time, you know. Go away, Doc. Is there anything you can do? I'm afraid not. Oh,
21: this is ghastly. Can't you leave him alone? Can't you let him die in peace? What are you afraid
0: of, Maggie? What are you afraid he'll say?
21: All right, all right. Tell them, Gordon. It was Dan that struck you, wasn't it? He was jealous. He always hated you for marrying me.
22: It was Dan. Now, 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 Mr. Starbuck. I know how you feel, but we can't allow this sort of thing. big step aside so we can finish up here. That's it. Mr. Starbuck. Doctor?
6: Uh, Very low pulse. I'm not sure. Dan. Dan.
22: Is Dan here? Here I am,
0: Gordon. Tell him. Tell him the truth.
22: Do you identify this man, Mr. Starber? Yes. He's my brother. Dan. You got that? Brother Dan, he's... He's what?
0: He's lying? Gordon, you know who did it. Why don't you tell the truth? Uh, What do you got to lose now? Nothing.
11: Nothing. I'm
22: finished.
11: You You finished me. Gordon! Uh, Gordon! Not yet. uh, I'll come back. uh, Doctor, can
22: He's dead. Well... Okay, Doc. Dennis Starbuck, it is my duty as sheriff of this county to take you into custody on suspicion of murder. And I must tell you that anything you say may be held against you you better come along, too, Spade. Routine questioning, you know. Okay, sure. And I don't think we'll need the handcuffs, will we, son? No, I'll go with you. Yes, indeed, son. It's always smart to come along quietly. Yeah. But this is as
9: far as I do. Hey, Dan, come back here! Hey, boy, Use your hand! After
0: one friend he was the best friend in the world for a man on the land, mm. the fog. The searchlights on the police launch spun frantically as the craft heeled around in a half circle to head him off. Instead of cutting the fog, the beams from the powerful lights bounced back from it and blinded the men behind them. After ten minutes of that, they gave up. The sheriff had a theory.
22: Uh, don't worry. Between the fog and the currents, I doubt if we'll make it. We'll probably recover the body in the morning.
0: And they did. But it wasn't Dan Starbuck's body. It was the bosun, Dell Casino. And he was found in Richardson Bay adrift in the dinghy from the Marguerite. Somebody had creased his skull with the same type blunt instrument that had been used on Gordon Starbuck. But Dell hadn't lived long enough to make a
19: dying declaration. The makers of Wild Root Cream Oil are presenting the weekly Sunday adventure of National Hammett's famous private detective, Sam Spade. <laughs> Here's important news on good grooming If you want the well-groomed look that helps you get ahead socially and on the job Listen Recently thousands of people from coast to coast who bought wild root cream oil for the first time were asked How does wild root cream oil compare with the hair tonic you previously used? The results were amazing Better than four out of five who replied said they preferred wild root cream oil And no wonder It gives you the advantages that men consider most important Wild Root Cream Oil grooms your hair neatly and naturally, relieves annoying dryness, and removes loose dandruff. What's more, non-alcoholic Wild Root Cream Oil is the only leading hair tonic that contains soothing lanolin. That's like the oil of your skin. So ask for Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. By the way, smart girls use Wild Root Cream Oil, too. And mothers say it's grand for training children's hair. And now, back to Caper with Two Deathbeds. Tonight's adventure with Sam Spade.
0: The police theory of the Del Casino killing went something like this casino had shoved off in the dinghy to join in the search for Dan Starbuck, had rescued him and had been maced for his pains. Also found in the dinghy, but not as yet worked into the police theory, were two items. One, a waterproof wallet containing the Seaman's papers of one Nils Halverson; Two, a tattoo mark on the right bicep of the deceased. A small heart with a name in it, Maggie. The brand new widow of the same name was waiting in my office when I got there the following afternoon. (laughs) Hello. Hello to you, Mrs. Starbuck. What can I do for you?
21: Mr. Spade, I... I know very little about the ethics of your profession, and... Well, are... Are you still working for Danny?
0: If you mean, do I know where he is, the answer's no. Oh.
21: I hoped you'd say that. Why? Because I want you to work for me.
0: Need a new bosun? Uh,
21: You needn't have put it quite so
0: crudely. No, I needn't.
21: Since your work is confidential, I'll admit I've... I've done a few things that but... well, it's all too true. My first mistake was marrying Gordon Starbuck when I didn't love him, and I should never have let myself fall in love with Dan. I certainly should have known better than to let Dell fall in love with me.
0: What about Nils Halverson?:
21: And me? Well, hardly. No. Nils Halverson was employed by my husband for various odd jobs whenever we put in at Sausalito. Mostly, he'd row the guests out to the ship. He rowed Danny out the night my husband was killed. At least I think he did. I didn't actually see him. Where's
0: Halverson now?
21: I don't know. He he goes off on drunks for days at a time. But, but but I have a feeling that someone has paid him to disappear. He he might have overheard something. Hold on a minute.
0: You're going too fast. Are you uh, working up to a confession?
21: Oh no. It's it's just that I'm afraid a great injustice may have been done to Danny. After all, Mr. Spade, a man who's dying, I don't see how he could be altogether in his right mind. Do you?
0: The law says he is if he knows his name and address. A deathbed accusation is the strongest evidence a lawyer can shove at a jury. You can't cross-examine a dead man, and most people have the quaint idea that a man on his deathbed is a lot more truthful than he was when he was hale and hearty.
21: Then you think Gordon may have been lying?
0: Could be, or wool-gathering, or picking up some of the lines you were feeding him.
21: Oh, I, I was just afraid he might die before he... You you see, I thought I might shock him into saying yes or no. He he, he could have said no, couldn't he?
0: Well, make up your mind.
21: Oh, all I know is it's on my conscience now. If we could find old Halverson and force him to tell what he knows. He's a very strange man. He's devoted to me. If if the police find him before I do, he he might refuse to talk out of a mistaken loyalty. To you? Well, I, I meant if he thought I had anything to do with the... Well, he's very strange. I told you that.
0: What makes you so sure he's alive?
21: Why wouldn't he be?
0: If I'd been the killer and he'd rode me to and from the scene of my crime, I'd see him secured in Davy Jones' locker. Fish feed, lobster bait, asleep in the deep.
21: Will you work for me?
0: I'll let you know. I didn't have time to get tattooed, but the rest of me was marinated enough. On my head, I was wearing a dirtied-up yachting cap. And the rest of me, I was wearing a pea jacket, dungarees, and sea boots. I was also wearing clamshell number five as I rolled up to the Viking saloon. Well, what did it be, mate? Uh, archivite and water. Uh, have you seen my cousin? Your cousin? Who's your cousin? Prince Valium? Uh, no, my cousin, Niels Halverson. Niels Halverson. Oh, no. You're Niels' cousin, mm, I you?
10: Yeah. Well, uh, coming from the old country? yeah uh, Minnesota.
0: Uh, by you, Minnie.
1: Well, no, he'll be right
22: glad to see you uh, where, uh, fair Where is he? Uh, uh, I don't want to say this too loud. Bend yeah. over there. A yeah.
1: He's in trouble, you know.
22: Oh, yes. I got him holed up down below. Oh, yes. Yeah, come on, come on.
0: Well, by golly, I sure been glad to be going to see my cousin Nils <laughs> Niels Halverson. Drop the act and get down
11: there. Hey! Okay, Joe, I'll
9: take over here. Easy, easy, easy. Okay,
11: Danny, my boy, I got his gun. But well, watch him now, watch him. He's full of
9: smorgasbord.
0: Well, Spade, you're the one person I didn't expect to see. But I'm very glad to. Yeah. I wish I hadn't found you. I wanted to find somebody else first. Halverson? Yeah. He's here. Want we'll to see him? That's what I came for. And under here. Watch your head, low bridge. Yeah. And here we are. Where? A boathouse under the pier. Halverson used to hole in here to sleep off his schnapps. Where is he now? Over here. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's going to be a long time sleeping this one off. He'd been missing since that night. Nobody knew he was here till last night. I headed for the saloon when I swam ashore. Joe hid me out here. He could still talk then. What'd he say? I wrote it down here. But it's no help. Let's see it. It's just a jumble word. words. Uh, Marguerite. Marguerite. Merry Christmas drink. My beautiful Helga. Row, row your boat. Now throw me back. Row me back. good and drunk Mm. Fog rolling in, Good and drunk Gonna be five days No business Oh, my head Paint the book Oh, crazy stuff $20, uh Did you give him 20 bucks to roll you out? I didn't even see him I swam out My loving brother Wouldn't have let me on board If he'd heard me arriving like a gentleman 20 bucks Did you frisk him? No I'll have a look Oh, I don't Hey, wait uh-huh. Real soggy, but a 20. I don't care. I'm sticking to my story. I swam out there. I didn't give him that 20. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you didn't. I mean, You've got to believe me. I didn't even have 20 bucks. That's why I Shut got... Shut up. What's the matter with you? What are you going to do? Come over here, Dan. Why? <clears> hey! <throat> I don't believe a word of your story, and even if I did, it wouldn't make any difference. What are you... Shut up. You're going to stop talking and listen for a while. I stuffed a gag into his mouth and muscled him over to a piling and handcuffed him to it. He didn't even look surprised. He just stood there staring at me as if he'd lost his last friend in the world. But I wasn't looking at him as much as I was listening to those footsteps in the boards overhead. I waited for them to come back. They did. I walked across the soggy planks to where Nils Halverson lay in the shadows. Nils, I want you to answer these questions again. Now, this time, I'm going to take them down. You get lots of $20 and lots of drink. Now then, I know you don't feel so good. You don't have to talk if you don't feel like it. Just nod your head for yes and shake it for no. Okay, Nils? That counts in a court of law as long as there's a witness. Okay. Now... Your name is Nils Halverson. Your address is 213 Bayview Sausalito. That's correct, is it? Nod your head. Good. Good. That proves you're in your right mind. You know you were injured. Yeah. You know the cause of your injury. Hit on the head and thrown over the side of your boat. What? Huh? Not from... Oh, dingy. Well, it's the same thing. All right. Now, you know you're dying, you have no hope of recovery. That's obvious, but nod your head. That's the boy. Now, uh, Nils, on the night of the 18th, around 10 o'clock after your usual working hours, you rode somebody out to the yacht Marguerite in return for which this person gave you a $20 bill. This person is also the person who killed, who, in, who inflicted your fatal injuries. It is. Now, uh, the name of that person, if you can possibly speak even in a whisper, so there can be no mistake. Can you hear me? Just say it close to my ear. Yeah? Yes. Yes, I got it. That's all. Now, I know you don't write, Nils, but make your mark here. Come on, I'll guide your hand. There. Now we're going to take... Nils. Nils. Well, anyway... All right, Maggie. Come on in and join the party. Uh, Don't try anything. The light's on you. I'm a better shot than you, and if there's a ruckus, the whole saloon will be down on us. They're all friends of Danny's, too. Stop there. Toss the gun. Okay. What's the matter, Angel? You look kind of scared.
21: No. Just disappointed, that's all.
0: Don't give up so easy, sweetheart. I always wanted to take a trip around the world.
21: We might go on the marguerite together.
0: Yeah, yeah, sailing into the sunset, sleeping with our deathbed statements under each other's pillows.
21: I see what you mean. I guess it wouldn't work. How much for yours, and what do we do about him?
0: Dan, I'll take care of that. Throw it in with a deal.
21: Okay. But I want it in writing. A little statement to the effect that I can keep under my pillow.
0: Fair enough. Now, all I want from you is a little statement from you to this effect. That you, Marguerite Starbuck, employed Nils Halverson to row you out to the yacht on the night of the 18th, that you there overheard a quarrel between your husband and brother-in-law, and that taking advantage of said brother-in-law's inebriated condition, you sneaked up behind your husband, hit him with a paperweight, and decamped, leaving the murder weapon in Dan's hand. You then started back to shore in the dinghy, and realizing that the only witness who could testify you were aboard that all night... All right,
21: all right. All right, I'll sign it. Okay. We'll have plenty of time to put in all the legal decorations later.
0: I'm afraid we won't, baby. You're going to be spending all your available time at the Hatchapee and Points West.
21: What are you talking about? You just
0: made a full confession in front of a witness. You heard it, didn't you, Dan? Every word.
21: Oh, if I... Honest. An honest man.
0: Well, I did tell a fib. Now, this is really going to hurt, I'm afraid, Maggie. You see, we didn't actually have any deathbed statement to match yours. No? No. Nils Halverson was a good deal too dead to have made a deathbed statement just now. He's been stiff for 12 hours. A period and a report.
20: Well, Sam, I'll type this right up because then I'm leaving.
0: Wait a minute, Effie. I had to do it that way. Don't you understand? Of
20: course, Sam. I quite understand.
0: But you object, huh? A cruel, ruthless, murdering, though beautiful woman foiled by a clever ruse. A great acting performance by the greatest private detective of them all. Is that all? You're still leaving.
20: Yes, Sam. My bag's a pack.
0: Well, pardon me for having feet.
19: There's a reason, men. In fact, there are five big reasons why more men every day are turning to wild root cream oil for well-groomed hair. Wild Root Cream Oil grooms your hair neatly and naturally. Wild Root Cream Oil relieves dryness and removes loose dandruff. Wild Root Cream Oil is non-alcoholic and contains soothing lanolin. Five big reasons why you, too, should join the millions with handsome, well-groomed hair. Why you should step up to your drug or toilet goods counter and ask for Wild Root Cream Oil. Get the big economy bottle and the handy new tube that's easy to pack when you travel and just right for the office or plant. Also, ask your barber for a professional application of Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first.
20: Well, here it is, Sam. Goodbye. Now,
19: wait a minute, Effie. You can't leave like this, not
0: without... Oh,
20: all right. I'll talk to you while I'm putting my hat on. Well,
0: can't you at least look at me? After all, you should give me a chance to justify... Sam,
20: apparently you're laboring under an apprehension.
0: Of course I am.
20: Oh, boy, am I glad I picked the last in June and the first in July...
0: What are you talking about?
20: My vacation.
0: Vacation? You just had a vacation a few months back.
23: Well, Sam, that's a year.
0: Well, if you want to take advantage of the legal technicality. Now,
23: Sam, don't say goodbye, man. Well,
0: it, well, it's customary, I suppose. It's, it's lucky that some of us keep our nose to the grindstone, our ear to the ground, and eye to the future. Huh? Television's just around the corner, you know.
18: Oh, Sam.
0: <laughs> Come here, sweetheart. You look lovely. Come here. Have a wonderful time.
18: Oh, Sam! Oh,
23: Sam! Come here. <gasps>
0: Now go on. You miss your train. Uh, where are you going?
3: The Los Cierras.
0: Well, just so you don't go to Kanab, Utah. All
3: right, Sam. You know best. Good. Good night.
0: Good night, Sierra Sue. Now, who can we get for that part next week? <laughs>
19: Adventures of Sam Spade, Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, are produced and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade is played by Howard Duff. Lorene Tuttle is Effie. The Adventures of Sam Spade are written for radio by Bob Tallman and Gil Dowd, with musical direction by Lud Gluskin. Join us again next Sunday when author Dashiell Hammett and producer William Spear join forces for another adventure with Sam Spade, brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. This is Dick Joy reminding you to... Get Wild Root Cream Oil, Charlie. It keeps your hair in trim. You see, it's non-alcoholic, Charlie. It's made with soothing lanolin. You better get Wild Root Cream Oil, Charlie. Start using it today. You'll find that you will have a tough time, Charlie. Keeping all the gals away. Hiya, baldy. Get Wild Root right away. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
3: This one is one of those short shorts, and I think it came on every day like some of the others. It's called Calling All Detectives. And um, they also had one called Calling All Cars, um, and I was gonna put an episode of it in here, but uh my show's already a hundred years long as it is this week. So um but anyway, uh this one is called what did I say?
18: Hunt down a dangerous Hunt cow. Down
3: a Dangerous Killer, yeah that's what it was. See, I, I tell you what, folks, I'm sixty three, I think I've got short term memory loss. <laughs> oh
4: sure. Blame your
3: age. <laughs> yeah, well gotta blame something. I can't I, you know, I can't blame it. I can't take responsibility for it. Granted. <laughs> You'll be there someday, Victor.
1: I know, I know. I can't wait.
3: Oh <laughs> uh, and um but anyhow I think we're ready to go.
24: Calling all detectives. A savage killer roams a city, cannot escape the net, but can't be captured either. What happens to such a man when he's hunted like a dangerous animal? That's the situation on this page from my casebook. The casebook of Jerry Browning, Private Detective. When you read that a private detective like me, Jerry Browning, has captured a dangerous killer, maybe you wonder how we do it. Hurry up with those money bags.
3: Get him onto the car.
24: You and that cage? What are you trembling about? I'm sorry. I please don't shoot me. <laughs> Look at that punk. He thinks he's gonna die. Well, he's right. Okay, boys, let's go. A bank holdup and a wanton, senseless murder. That's how Stony Galen operated. And now he and his mob had invaded our city. But this time. I sat in the police car with Lieutenant Dawson at the roadblock. Jerry, how can you be sure they'll take this road? Because I think Stoney's headquarters is someplace west of here, which means he must take this road. The car approaching was coming at top speed. Didn't slow down as it neared the roadblock. Here they come! The getaway car slewed around and headed back the way it had come, though not before it was whacked end-to-end by machine gun fire. Then... The chase was a brief one. Only minutes later, the getaway car went over an embankment, came to rest on its side. When we got to it, there were two dead bandits inside, two more dying. But the gang leader, Stoney Galen, had somehow survived and escaped. Although we intercepted and smashed a bank hold-up and murder gang, its leader, Stoney Galen, managed to escape. Attention all cars! Stoney Galen getaway car wrecked on Route 27A, three miles east of Barricade 9. Galen has escaped. By nightfall, Stony was still uncaptured. The wreck had occurred in a wooded section of country well within city limits. Stoney was at large, but he was bottled up, and now the net slowly began to close. Dawson speaking? Yes, keep search parties going all night if necessary. Jerry Browning speaking. What's the address? 1518 Hawthorne. Hold the wire. Hey, Dawson, suspicious character seen going into 1518 Hawthorne. I know the house. Small time crooks use it as a hideout. We'll pull an immediate raid. Anybody who shelters Galen will be held as an accessory to murder.
18: <laughs>
24: Into the patrol wagons, boys. On after Stoney Galen. And if we find him here, you'll all take the same rap together. They have a hunt, Brownie. Stoney's hunted in the 10 cents pistol. Nobody will hide him out. He's a mad dog. Three days later, we still hadn't found Stoney Galen, but we had plenty of evidence that he was inside the city. The series of raids Dawson kept staging on every known hideout of crooks had the underworld seething, ensured that nobody would dare help the killer. The first real evidence of Stoney's presence came when he broke into a grocery store, wounded an elderly man, fired several shots wildly about, before escaping with an armload of food and about $18. The old man told us, He looked like a crazy man. clothes all torn... Face dirty,
18: unshaved.
24: We didn't get Stony that time, or the next time either, when he held up a garage and tried to steal a car. At that time, I ain't afraid of no cheap crook with a gun. I took the gun away from him and beat his ears off before he got away from me. That was Galen. You mean Stony Galen? And I'm still alive? Yes, the mechanic was still alive because Stoney Galen tried to stage a hold-up with an empty gun. He was out of ammunition. And still the net kept drawing tight. We found the remains of one small campfire in a gully, another beneath a railway bridge, a third in a tangled ravine near the river's edge. One by one, all possible hiding places were being ferreted out and closed off. I stopped my car on Route 27A, at about the point where Galen's men were wrecked. I got out, walked over to the embankment, scrambled down the hill. Almost immediately, I found myself hidden from the road by trees. I looked around. To the right, the forest seemed denser, so I headed that way. I was testing out a theory. Stoney had been at large now for fifteen days, during the last five of which he'd been unreported either in the city proper or out in the open. There was no possibility of his breaking through the net, we were all certain of that. But then, where was he? I believed he was someplace in this patch of woods, that like some hard pressed animal, he'd returned to the terrain that first sheltered him. Now I was trying to project myself into the mind of a desperate hunted man. I stopped to look back along the way I'd come. I could have been a thousand miles from the heart of a city instead of about eight. Trying to project myself into the mind of a desperate hunted man. I stopped to look back along the way I'd come. I could have been a thousand miles from the heart of a city instead of about eight. I started walking again, always heading for the thickest part of the forest. Then I found a lead, a torn bit of cloth dangling from a low branch. I looked down noticed a faint beaten path in the undergrowth. I followed it for about a quarter of a mile. It ended abruptly against a small hill. I was just about to turn back, but I noticed the cave opening. Leaves and branches were piled against it, but one branch had slipped down, revealing the aperture. I walked up to the cave mouth. I know you're in there, Galen. Come on out. There was no reply. I waited a few moments, then, come on out, Galen, or I'm coming in after you. The thing that came out of the cave had once been a man. Now it was some shambling, monstrous creature. A caricature of humanity. Cut and torn, bearded and blank-eyed. And making incoherent noises in its throat. Stony Galen, after 15 days of being hunted. I walked up to him. Come on, Stoney. Let's get out of the woods. And that's how Stony Galen was taken. Not very heroic, is it? There was a revolver in his pocket. He'd stolen it from a farmhouse, but he never tried to use it. Because there was no more fight left in it. That's what it does to a man to be relentlessly tracked down, harried and hounded... until finally he becomes a mindless animal creature. Like I said, when a killer is finally taken... It isn't how dangerous he used to be that's important. But what's happened to him since the time human society marked him as an outcast. Listen next time to Calling All Detectives. Mystery drama, mystery quiz. And a chance for you to match wits with yours truly, Jerry Browning, Private Detective.
3: This next one is, um, I was a communist for the FBI, and I love this one. They also have FBI and Peace and War that I like, too, and, uh, I'll put that on at some point. The ones I picked are not all the detective shows I have. I have a booth, a ton of them, um, but I was trying to pick some that, you know, didn't get played every day on, on the shows and stuff. I mean, not that they never got played, but you know, just things that were a little bit different. And, um, so anyway, but this one is I Was a Communist for the FBI, and it's called Little Red Schoolhouse.
13: I Was a Communist for the FBI.
12: Starring Dana Andrews and an exciting tale of danger and espionage. I was a communist for the FBI. You are about to hear a strange story. Names, dates, and places are, for obvious reasons, fictional. But many of these incidents are based on the actual experiences of Matt Savetic. Who, for nine fantastic years, lived as a communist for the FBI. Here is our star, Dana Andrews, as Matt Savedic. You can read it
13: in the official reports, the whole story of my life as a communist for the FBI. I was in the party, I saw it work. For nine years, I recorded the communist conspiracy against the United States from within. This is part of the story.
12: In a moment, listen to Dana Andrews as Matt Sivetic, Undercover Man. as Matt Svetik, Undercover Man. This story from his confidential file is marked Little Red Schoolhouse.
14: Hey! that's where you're walking. What are you trying to do, Chum? Live dangerously? I'm sorry, mister. Yeah, I'm nuts.
25: Excuse me, buddy, but have you got a match? Sure. Here. Yeah. Thanks.
13: Keep him. It's a red nine today.
25: Tomorrow's red eight. Hello, Matt. Been a long time since we worked together. When did you get transferred from Detroit, Ed? A month ago. Oh, here comes our car. Hopping back with me. Okay, Klein, take off. Let's make it
13: fast. You know how the party checks on my time.
25: Well, I wish we could offer you more protection, Matt. But... I know. I'm on
13: my own. The report? A new Soviet agent has arrived from Linyan Institute in Russia. A few picked commies have been undergoing training in propaganda and infiltration. I'm one of them.
25: And this new Soviet agent?
13: Is going to meet with us for briefing and assignment to some important jobs. Anything else? Meeting place is to be changed. This new Soviet agent isn't taking any chances. I don't even know his name yet. When do you meet him? Tonight? Six. Better drop me off now. Any place along here.
25: Yeah, pull it up, Glenn. Any last instructions? Yes, man, I want a full report by mail. Also, let me know by phone if you can the name of this new agent and the location your meeting place.
13: I'll let you know, is it... Your...
25: get in quick. Uh, sure. What's up? That man, walking away right from the corner. He was watching us. Who is he? Vasily Conestoy, a suspected Soviet agent. He's new here. We had him in the office for a routine check. You? Ed, that makes him the boy from Lennon Institute. Yes, very possibly. He knows I'm FBI, so you'd better start praying he didn't get a good look at you, with me. If he did and he recognizes you later... Spare the details. I know what'll happen. I'm in the party, remember?
13: Whether Ed Greeson remembered or not, I did. It was the price of my life. When 6 o'clock came, I was picked up and driven to a small, isolated red brick house. Inside were five people. Four men and a girl. Introductions told me the girl's name was Stephanie. And seating arrangements put us together in a corner. Close up, her dark loveliness was almost like a blow.
26: Comrade Matt. Comrade Matthew. No, I like Comrade Matt better. Hard, tough, like you.
13: It's a tough world, Comrade Stephanie. No room for softness. We're nothing. The party and its beliefs are everything. Do you disagree with that?
26: <laughs> of course not, Comrade Matt. Only that being near you makes me feel like a woman. Is that so terrible?
13: That's dangerous talk. I'd be more careful.
26: I'm always careful. We'll talk more later.
27: Comrades, I am Vasily Konnystoy. I bring you greetings from Comrade Stalin. He thanks you for your loyal work, but he also desires more work, more sacrifice, especially from you, picked comrades. You are to lead the way to revolution, the Soviet state of America.
13: While I listened, I carefully surveyed the room, the people, until I knew I would remember every detail. Vasily Cornistoy was a big man, 6'1", maybe 2'. Wait around 200, black-haired with eyes that forgot to smile when he did. Those eyes stabbed me, and I knew Conestoy's memory was at work. When the meeting was over, he kept me for a
27: private talk. Something to drink? No oh, thanks. <sighs> My throat was dry. I have had the feeling all evening that we have met before Comrade Shredik.
13: Not that I can recall.
27: Well, no matter. I'll remember sometime. I always do. You have a way home? Well, the cab stand only a mile from here. It's a nice walk. Very well. Good night, Comrade. Good
13: night,
26: Comrade Matt. Over here.
13: Oh, it's you, Comrade Stephanie.
26: Oh, this is my car. Would you ride into town with me?
13: Oh, thanks. You drive. car. Nice girl. Nice night. It's quite a combination.
26: I'm glad you like it.
13: Oh, I didn't say I liked it. I said it was quite a combination.
26: (laughs) You are a heel, aren't you? Then I suppose I have been pretty obvious.
13: You have. Wow, that's some curve.
26: Now, with a drop-off of a hundred feet, if you ever went over that embankment, it would be curtains. You should go slower. So should you. You needn't be rude, Matt says that you're the first man in a long time I've been attracted to. Matt. All right, all right, comrade Matt. I know it's heresy for a party member to have feelings. I was hoping you might understand.
13: Take it easy, Stephanie. You're tired. You're saying things that could get you into trouble.
26: Yeah, I guess I am tired. May I put my head on your shoulder? Sure. Thanks. That's a nice feeling. Your shoulder's strong. What I said
13: about the combination, I mean.
26: The car and the night and me. I like it. Do you excuse me? How did you turn off the ignition? Park for a moment. Why? This is why. <laughs>
13: I got to my hotel, dawn was breaking. Before I went to sleep, however, I made a call to a certain number and left a message for Ed Grayson to meet me that morning with a wiring crew. Five hours sleep, then I was in a clump of woods near the Little Red Schoolhouse listening to Ed give orders to a half-dozen men loaded with wiring equipment.
25: All right, men. Frederick's checked the house gas meter. No one's there now, but that doesn't mean they won't come back at any time. So do your work fast and do it good. Now get moving. The mic's better be well-hidden, Ed. The kind sharp. And suspicious. Yeah, he'd have to tear down the walls to find these. Did he recognize you? Yes, but he can't remember where yet. Hmm. How long is he going to be here? I don't know. Long enough to give us a briefing and our assignments. Yeah, we got a lot of tape recording. We won't miss a thing that happens.
13: Good. I'll walk down now and grab a taxi and return to the house in the open. That way I'll be there to warn your men if Conestoy or the others show up.
25: Yeah, smart idea. When will the wiring job be
13: finished? Oh, six, five if it goes fast. That's running it pretty close meeting starts at 6.30. Yeah,
25: we'll do the best we can.
13: I returned later, and for the next four and a half hours, I played watchdog in the front porch of the Red House. From inside, I could hear the sounds of Grayson's men at work. At 5.42, the FBI men reported their job finished. They were packing up their equipment to leave by the back door when around the curve, I saw Conestoy's car approaching.
25: Did it, you guys?
27: Light rep, light rep. Well, come on What are you doing here so early? Oh, I uh,
13: thought I'd like to talk to you, comic-conistar. Oh? Let's go inside. Oh, wait. What? I mean, it's uh, so nice out here. Why don't we just stay on the porch?
27: I can talk here. Crazy, we could be spotted out here, inside. Oh, but, Comrade, you... would better keep it in mind that I give the orders.
13: Well, I... I guess being inside is not so bad, after all.
27: What's the matter with you? You look as if you expected to see something. What is it?
13: I merely wanted to be sure we were alone. I have a report to make about one of our comrades. Oh, is that so? Which one? Comrade Stephanie. She... She
27: shows definite signs of bourgeois emotionalism. Oh, I see... Then you had better watch her. Keep me informed. I will. <laughs> you really are a fanatic, aren't you, Comrade Srettich? I believe and follow the party line. Oh, don't mistake me. We need a few good fanatics. <laughs> uh, I wish I could remember where I have seen you before. Haunts me as if it's important that I should remember. <laughs>
13: The next few days were a growing fever of tension for me. The briefing was hard and thorough. I had little time to do anything but study, and this was complicated by constant invitations to study with Comrade Stephanie. And always hanging over my head was the threat of Conestoy's possible remembrance of seeing me with an FBI man. Finally, the last day of the week rolled round.
27: Tonight, comrades, you receive your assignments. You have been well trained. Now you will act on that training.
13: We will organize infiltration of schools?
27: That is correct. You, Comrade Svechik, receive a choice plan. Do you know Bryson University?
13: Yes. Small college not far north of here.
27: Though small, Bryson is a highly respected school. An example to many other colleges. You and Comrade Stephanie will see that the seeds of communism are planted there.
18: We
13: will not fail, Comrade Conestar.
27: I am sure you won't. Comrade Svetik, about where I have seen you. Perhaps you were around my hotel for some reason?
18: Mm, No.
27: No. Well, don't worry. Maybe by the time you finish your assignment, I will remember. (laughs)
12: to Dana Andrews, starring as Matt Saverick in I Was a Communist for the FBI, and the second act of our story.
13: How long, how long did I have before the Soviet agent Conestoy remembered seeing me with an FBI man? The knowledge of what would happen when he did was a cold, leaden ball in my stomach. As with Comrade Stephanie, I listened to Conestoy's final instructions on our new assignment to infiltrate Bryson University.
27: There is one professor at Bryson who will be your best asset, Comrade Svetik. A Professor Walden. Is he a fellow traveler? A very reluctant one. You will have to play down everything except how communism will save the oppressed from the tyranny of fascism. Walden is fond of helping underdogs. Well, uh, can you get us a big name, Comrade Conestoy, kind of someone to lecture the students? I will send a wire tonight to Philip Stanley. The senior. Yes. He has a big reputation. The kids will listen to him even if he is a pinko chump. Will he come? He'll come. He's a thoroughgoing exhibitionist. Now, here's some expense money. Yes. Comrade Stephanie? Yes? I'm sending you with Comrade Svetik for only one reason. So you can have the opportunity to get your thinking straight by watching his.
26: Well, I don't... I don't understand you.
27: He is an exemplary party worker. If you are wise, when you come back, you will be too. That's all. Good night. Good night, Comrade Conestoy.
26: Good night, Comrade.
27: Oh, Comrade Tretti. Yes? I just remembered where I saw you. Where? At the meeting of the Control Commission the first day I arrived back here from the Lenin Institute.
13: Oh... No, I, I wasn't at that meeting.
27: <laughs> oh, I swear I had better remember it soon, or it will be the death of me.
13: Bryson University. The usual ivid buildings and rolling green campus, littered with students. Professor Walden turned out to be a thin, white-haired man with bent iron-rimmed spectacles. His office was a six-foot square of stale air wrapped around a battered desk and a stack of papers.
12: Uh, You're coming to see me like this has posed quite a moral problem, Mr. Svetik. Yes, indeed, there's quite a problem. You see, I am not sure I am in complete sympathy with communist teachings.
13: Oh, of course, but we're not here to ask you to become a communist professor. We merely ask you to work with us in bringing relief to the unfortunates of the world.
12: Oh? Well, in that case, I. what can I do to help?
13: Two things. Give us a list of students you believe to be in sympathy with our cause.
12: And the others? We're going to
13: organize a a lecture. Philip Stanley, the famous singer, is flying all the way out here to address the students. It would be nice if you could act as master of ceremonies and introduce him.
12: Oh, why, of course. I'll be delighted. Philip Stanley, indeed.
18: (laughs)
13: Professor Walden gave us a list of a dozen names, and we went right to work on it. Heading the list was a boy named Roger Vanning. We found him in the Student Union, a hodgepodge of noise and smoke which figures as the social center of any college.
26: My goodness, Matt, this is like Mardi Gras. We'll never find
16: him, all this man. Sure
13: we will, but keep moving, or you'll be crushed.
16: No. Wow. Hey, fellas, what about this one? She's real great all the way.
13: Looks like you've made a hit, Stephanie. Ask him if he knows Vanning.
26: All right. Uh, Excuse me, but do you know where I can find Roger Vanning? The youngest, man. Oh, why not take a seat here, Dolly?
25: For you, I would go on the hook. That'll do, Junior. No sense, Dad. I ain't cruising for bruising.
13: Come on, Stephanie. That Roger Vanning looks like a kid who can vote. You'd better handle him alone. I'll try the next one on our list, uh, Grace Sprocket. Meet you out front later. (laughs) Well, you see, Miss Sprocket, it's up to the intelligentsia, like yourself, to lead the others.
26: I understand perfectly, Mr. Sabetic. And I can promise you at least 20 students for the meeting.
13: Good. Philip Stanley will know of your work, I can assure you.
26: He will? I mean, of course, that I'm naturally quite pleased to be connected with Mr. Stanley in such a worthy cause. You may tell him he can depend upon Grace Sprocket.
13: Sure. I'll tell him. <laughs> Four days of work, and we had nearly 200 students lined up for our demonstration. I hired a hall near the campus, decorated it with the usual banners and slogans. During last minute preparations, my mind was on Conestoy. Would he have remembered yet? Perhaps he had, and even now the Goon Squad was on its way.
18: Oh, oh,
25: me, 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 me. oh these are terrible acoustic synthetics, perfectly awful really shouldn't sing at all in a barn like this. After all, you know, these boys and girls are my public. They deserve to hear me at my best. Oh, absolutely, Mr. Stanley. However,
13: just being able to see you in person and hear your words of truth will inspire these young people to magnificent heights. They'll recognize you as something far greater than a singing star. Greater than a star? Of course. You'll be known as a social leader. A man destined to sway multitudes toward the goal of true socialistic society. Well, I
25: hadn't thought of it that way. Now, excuse me, Cedric. I think I'll go run over this speech you prepared for me.
13: Mm, better practice it, knucklehead. I hope I can keep my dinner when I hear it.
26: Oh, Matt, come here a minute, would
13: you? Sure. What is it, Stephanie?
26: Well, I just wanted to check plans with you.
13: Okay. After his song, Stanley will give his talk. At the end, when he starts the International... You give Grace Sprocket and the other agitators the signal to jump up and begin a community sing out
26: of it. And when the crowd's good and excited, Sprocket and company lead them off for a demonstration on faculty row. Uh
13: And be sure the placards and signs are ready for them to pick up on the way out. Come on, let's get this thing rolling.
12: Ladies and gentlemen of Bryson. This evening marks the beginning of a new movement here in Bryson. A movement that will excite you as it has excited me.
14: Tonight, we are striking a blow against oppression. Oh, all my beloved friends. Here at Bryson, I want to thank you for your wonderful reception of my humble talent and words. In closing this meeting, I can only think of the words of a song dear to my heart and dear to the hearts of all who have compassion for the more unfortunate of this earth. Sing it with me. The words are on the sheets of paper you found in your seats. That's it. The international Sing it with me. All right, ye victims of privation. Rise up, all ye who are for law. Sing it, let's sing for it.
18: There's an the degradation for a new world being born.
13: Everything went off like clockwork. Excited by the speeches and music, and led by the screaming Grace Sprocket in a cohort, the thoughtless kids eagerly snatched up the waiting placards and signs to start the demonstration on the campus. For an hour, Stephanie and I watched from the background as the shouting, chanting students paraded on faculty row.
26: Not a very pretty sight, Matt.
25: Are you crazy? That's exactly what we wanted. The
26: police... There'll be a riot for sure.
13: Right. That's why I called him. Come on, Stephanie. Our work here is done. Here we are, Stephanie. Back at the little red schoolhouse. Come on, Conestor's waiting for us.
26: Let him wait for a minute. I'm sick of it, Matt. I'm sick of the rottenness of the lying and cheating. Let's quit the party, you and I. We could go away together.
13: What? Well, you must be out of your stupid mind talking to me this way.
26: Well, what, are you, what are you going to do?
13: What do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to report you. The party has ways of dealing with treason.
26: Come on, please don't turn me in that I'm sorry.
13: It's too late. Get inside.
27: I heard the report on the You did a good job, comrades. What's the trouble?
13: You look angry. I am angry. This traitor just tried to make me quit the party.
27: Oh, did she? (laughs) (laughs) I told you, Comrade Stephanie. Comrade Svetik is as solid as the Kremlin.
26: He sure is.
13: Wait. Wait a minute. You mean I was just being tested?
26: Testing high ranking party members is my job, Comrade Svetik. I'm an agent of the MVD. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'll have to get back to town and file my report.
13: Tested. After all my years in the party.
27: Happens to all of us. Oh, oh yes. Sir. I have something for you. A reward. Here in this drawer. Reward? This. Put up your hands.
13: A gun? What's this all about? I don't understand.
27: FBI agent. That's where I saw you. You were talking to an FBI man. I told you I would remember.
13: Oh, now, now look, I, I can explain that. Get out this to bellagent. my
27: car, you dirty stool pigeon. Move! What do you plan to do? You mind telling me? <laughs> yes, I will be glad to. I want you to have time to be afraid. We are going to arrange a little suicide. Your suicide. <laughs>
13: My only hope was the FBI surveillance. Conestoy and I were at his car when the FBI men moved in on the run, Ed Grayson leading. Conestoy opened the car door just as Grayson squeezed a shot over our head.
9: Down, Matt, down!
13: I hit the dirt in that precious second when Conestoy's attention was distracted by Grayson. Then Conestoy made his break.
27: Stop! Conestoy, stop! All right,
13: FBI fire laced the night with red as it went over me, but Conestoy had a good start. He was getting away when he hit that bad curve, doing 70. Then there was nothing on earth that could save him as his car skidded over the steep embankment.
18: No
25: use calling an ambulance. Conestoy's dead. Better clear out, fellas, and let the police handle this as an accident. I'll stick around squared with them. It's a tough way to go. Lucky for you, though, Matt. You're free to keep on with your work. Yeah, he was the only one who knew. Well, I'd better get out of here. I think I'll walk up and take
13: a last look at the Little Red Schoolhouse. No, it wasn't the end of a story, nor the beginning. It was just a part of the strange war I was fighting. Freedom's a good cause. It made me feel contented, even though I knew that until the war was won, I'd always be a man who walked alone.
12: Our star, Dana Andrews, will return in a moment.
13: This is Dana Andrews. Many of these stories we bring you are based on actual events and happenings that took place here, in this country, in the real-life experiences of Matt Svetik, our country, America, must be kept a strong nation, and we who love this country must be constantly on guard against the traitors who bore from within. For this reason, I urge you to listen again next week when we will dramatize another exciting adventure from Matt Svedic's official records. We hope you will join us.
3: Called Ideal in Crime, um, and um, yeah, he's, a, he's an investigator. I, his name escapes me right at the moment. Duh. I hate when I do that, but anyway, y'all, I'm getting old. But <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> this one is called the Abigail Murray case.
11: in crime.
5: The American Broadcasting Company presents I, Deal in Crime, starring William Gargan as Ross Dolan.
11: This is Ross Dolan speaking about a woman named Abigail Murray. And if you can draw a picture from the name Abigail, your mental photography is probably correct. She's tall, skinny, with a prim mouth and a primer figure. She and Forty became acquainted quite some time back, and she dresses in solid black. I met Abigail Murray in quite the conventional manner. Uh, How do you do?
23: All right, young man. If you're ready to take your feet off your desk and sit up like a gentleman, I'm ready to discuss a business matter with you.
11: Oh, I'm so sorry, madam. Uh... I was so interested in your entrance that I forgot my manners.
23: Well, I can see that. Do you mind if I sit down?
11: No, no, not at all. Uh, Please do.
23: (sighs) Thank you, Mr. Dolan. You are Mr. Dolan? Yep. I'm Abigail Murray. I live in Norwalk, and I'm here in the city on a visit. I see. Also, I happen to be a schoolteacher.
11: I thought so, uh, Miss Murray.
23: Please, call me Miss Abigail. I'm used to that. Been used to it for 30 years.
11: Okay. Miss Abigail it is.
23: Now, I want to employ you, Mr. Dolan... You ought to be my escort. Are you willing to be that?
11: Well, that depends.
23: Uh, We're not going out to nightclubs and places of that nature. If that's what bothers you, I'm not the type.
11: No, no, I'm afraid you're not.
23: Uh, I merely want you to drive me across the city this evening. I'm visiting an old pupil of mine, and I dislike driving in the dark.
11: uh, That's all, huh? Just uh, drive you around tonight? Certainly. Miss Abigail, uh, there must be more than that. If if you just wanted to go across town, you could have taken a taxi cab or the uh, streetcar. Oh,
23: no, I couldn't do that. All on account of the letter.
11: Letter? Of course, the
23: letter. The one I have in my purse.
11: Oh, oh, Miss Abigail, you didn't tell me about the letter.
23: Well, naturally not. I haven't come to it yet.
11: Well, this letter, uh, what does it say?
23: It merely says that I'm going to be murdered tonight.
11: I took a long look at Abigail Murray, and believe me, she wasn't kidding. Also, in her prim New England manner, she wasn't particularly worried about the threatening letter, either. She handed it to me, and uh, I read it. Abigail Murray, you should have stayed in Norwalk. Now it's too late, because tonight you are going to die. How did you get this letter, Miss Abigail?
23: It came to the hotel where I'm residing, by special delivery.
11: But uh, uh, who could have sent this letter? Uh, Do you have any enemies?
23: Well, I've been a schoolteacher for 25 years. What do you think?
11: Well, I, I think the police station is a good spot for you. Come on.
23: Mr. Dolan, I wish you would dispel the notion that you can order me around like a simpleton. I've never gone to the police, and I'm not going to go now.
11: But, Miss Abigail. Now, do you I'm...
18: wish
23: to escort me across town tonight, or shall I find someone else?
11: Okay, you win. I'll be your escort.
23: Fine. I'm staying at the plaza. Pick me up at seven.
11: Oh, no. If you want me to guard you, I'm starting in right now.
23: But I'm going to the beauty parlor. <laughs> Having my hair waved. Well,
11: I'll be glad to come along uh, to make sure the curl isn't too permanent. Uh-huh. Abigail Murray picked up her bag, stuffed a threatening letter in it, and left my office with me right behind. She really did have a date with a hairdresser, and uh, I spent an interesting three hours in the outer room playing handies with a manicurist. Then we had dinner. I had a steak fried while Miss Abigail stayed in New England and had hers boiled. At eight that evening, we were driving along in her car.
23: You know, Mr. Dolan, this is the first time I've driven my car in the city at night.
11: I know, I can... Hey, look out! Hey, didn't you see that truck?
23: Of course I saw it, but I had the right of way.
11: Oh, fine.
23: After all, it was his duty to get out of my way. Uh They always get out of my way in Norwalk.
11: Yeah, yeah, I don't blame them. Uh, Oh, by the way, uh, just where are we going? To visit an old
23: pupil of mine at 327 Kendall. His name is Richard Way. He's been seriously ill. When he heard I was going to visit the city, he invited me to come and see him.
11: Would uh, he be the person who sent you that letter?
23: Richard? Oh, hardly. He has the general courage of a field
11: mouse.
23: Hmm. Well, we'll turn here and take a short cut to the park. I enjoy parks at night.
11: I would never have believed it. Oh, uh, Miss Abigail, uh, slow down a little. Mm, Why? Slow down, that's all. Well, but why? There's a car in back of us. You think there's something wrong? Uh, motion him to go around us. He's been trailing us the last few blocks.
23: Very
18: well.
11: The guy had fired three shots at us. Abigail let go of the steering wheel, and our car made a sharp right turn into a convenient tree. By the time I untangled myself and got out, the would-be killer had disappeared in a cloud of blue smoke.
23: No shots. They came right through the back window. He was shooting at us.
11: Uh, not us, Miss Abigail. He was shooting at you. Now, let me see if the car is all right, and then you and I are going to the police. We should have done that in the first place.
23: I want to visit Richard Way.
11: Later. Now, oh, let's see. He's banged up the front of the car.
23: Is everything all right, Mr. Dolan?
11: Yeah, yeah, you didn't do any damage. Just uh, dented one fender of it. Uh-oh. Now,
23: what's wrong?
11: The tire, it's flat. Is there a spare in back? Oh, yes, yes, of course. Well, hand me the keys, will you? Uh, we'll have to change that tire before we go any further. Uh,
23: here they are.
11: Now, you just take it easy, and I'll have this beauty switched to Nari.
23: Perhaps I could help, Mr. Dolan.
9: Okay, come along.
11: Now, we'll just take this wrench, find the jacket. Get back, Miss Abigail.
23: Why? What's wrong, Mr. Dolan? Uh, what's that bundle in there?
11: That's no bundle. That's the body of a man.
23: A man? Well, tell him to come out immediately.
11: I don't believe it would do any good. He's dead. The dead man was tucked into the back of the car like a sack of potatoes. We got a flashlight out of the glove compartment of Abigail Murray's car and looked him over. He'd been shot once. I could see that right away. Then Miss Abigail gave out with a startled exclamation. Mr. Dolan, that's Richard? Richard?
23: Richard Way, the man I was going to visit this evening.
11: We've got to get to a telephone right away, Miss Abigail. The police will have to be notified.
23: They'll ask a lot of questions.
11: Oh, murder always brings out the bump of curiosity on a policeman's head.
23: Huh. of course, he could have committed suicide.
11: Oh, sure, sure. This would look like suicide to anyone. The man shoots himself through the heart, then he climbs into the back of your car, pulls down the door, and locks it from the outside. Try again, Miss Abigail.
23: I've got it. That's how I was going to be murdered.
11: You mean they mistook Richard Way for you?
23: No, no, no. Don't you see? The person who wrote me that letter killed Richard Way. They put his body in my car. They knew it'd be found back there. I'd be accused of murder.
11: I don't know. That sounds like a long way around to arrange a murder frame. Well, let's lock this back and get out of here.
23: We're quite a ways into the park, Mr. Dolan. Do you think it's safe to walk?
11: It is if we walk where there isn't a road. I don't think our friend would leave his cut... Uh-oh. A car. He's come back. Out oh, of sight, quick.
23: Is it the same man?
11: I don't know. I can't see good enough. Oh, come on, Miss Abigail. We've got nothing to worry about now. Yeah,
23: but the man in that car, he'll see us.
11: I want him to see us. That car happens to be a prowl car. All right, you uh, what are you doing back there? Is this your car? That happens to be my car, officer. Oh, it happens to be your car, eh? Don't you know it's against the law to park off this road? Uh, we had a flat tire, officer. Flat tire, eh? And you were looking for your spare back there, huh? In the bushes. Officer, uh, I'm Ross Stolen, the private investigator. So what? Somebody fired a gun at us while we were driving through here. You can see the bullet holes in the back window. Go on. I got out and opened the back to get at the spare tire. There's a dead man in there. So you looked inside and found a... Did you say dead man? Yeah. I'll never look in the back of your car. Come on, both of you. But, Mr. Officer... Come on, I said... Now unlock that turtle bag. Okay. Mm-hmm. You didn't touch him, take anything out of his pocket?
23: Naturally not. Do I look like the sort of person who would touch a dead man?
11: You look like the sort of person who is coming down to headquarters and have a little chat.
23: Headquarters? Why, this is
11: disgraceful. Miss Abigail, if you only let me expect... One
23: might think that Mr. Dole and I were murderers.
11: Yeah, one might think you were. <laughs> Carter was one of those coldly efficient cops. He had me drive his police car to headquarters while Abigail Murray fumed, fussed, sputtered, and threatened. But it was like knocking down stone fences with a handful of sponges because Carter just sat back with no further comment. When we got to HQ, he herded us into a room for questioning.
23: I shall certainly telegraph the mayor of Norwalk. I've never before been treated in such degrading fashion.
11: Now, don't take it so hard, Miss Abbey. All we've got to do is prove that we didn't kill Richard Way and they'll let us go.
23: But why do we have to prove it? I always thought a person, uh, well, was presumed innocent until they were proved guilty. And so far, no one has proved anything. I
11: know, I know. And that officer,
23: that Carter person.
11: Did I hear somebody make
23: my money? You name? certainly did. And it was I.
11: I thought so. Now then, I want to ask you both some questions. After that, we'll decide what's to be done. You, Dolan... I looked over your identification. Yeah? What's your story? Well, uh, Miss Murray employed me to drive her across town. I took the job. We were driving through the park. Somebody took a shot at us and blew out a tire.
23: That's when we found Richard. I mean, the body. Miss
11: Murray, I was talking to Mr. Dolan. When I finished with him, there are some matters you and I shall
23: discuss. I was just trying to help.
11: You'll get your chance.
23: Oh.
11: Now, uh, you found the body, huh? Yeah, when I opened the turtle back on the car to get at the spare tire. Then what? Then I started looking around for cop In the bushes, off the road? What kind of a cop were you looking for? All right, Carter, you're having your little fun, but you forget. Some guy with a gunner just fired three shots at us. Did you expect me to parade around like a big, fat target? Go on. Well, when we heard your car approaching, we ducked. When I saw the PD label on the door, we came out, period. Okay. Now, Miss Murray, you employed Dolan because you were afraid you'd received a threatening letter.
23: I substantiated that statement with proof, Mr. Carter. I gave you the letter I
11: received. So you did, and that's why I'm asking all these questions. You see, the dead man, Richard Way, had some notes in his own handwriting in his pockets.
23: Is there something unusual about that?
11: There is in this case, Miss Murray. Comparing the handwriting on the notes with the letter you received, we came to the conclusion that they were both the same. What? The man who threatened you by mail was the man you found dead in your car. (laughs) Lot of similar chit-chat which took place at police headquarters, but Carter finally let us go. He warned us not to leave town, which was a little ridiculous because I have an office here, and Miss Abigail told Carter she wouldn't miss the fun at this point for a carton of eggs. I took her back to the plaza and went home to my apartment, wondering what would happen next. An hour later, it turned out to be a blonde.
23: I'm Same Murray. You're Ross Dolan.
11: And this is pretty late at night. What's on your mind, little lady? Don't little lady mean, Dolan.
23: Where's my aunt, Abby?
11: Abby? Oh, you mean Miss Abigail.
23: Yes, I mean Miss Abigail. Where is she?
11: Well, the last I saw of her, she was digging a flannel nightgown out of her telescope bag down at the Plaza Hotel. Get out
23: of the way. I'm going to search your apartment. You're going
11: to what? Move, I said. Now, just a second. You can't come fucking in here. Where her- is she? Try my refrigerator. She's probably hiding behind an ice cube. I'm not
23: going to waste time on you, Dolan. I came here to find my aunt. Uh, and if you don't turn her up in 30 seconds, I'll phone the police.
11: I wish you would. And while you're calling, enter a complaint for me, too.
23: I know all about you. You're one of those ruthless private detectives. You're one degree removed from a crook. You, you take money under tables and under false pretenses. And I'm going
11: to turn you over my knee and spank you if you don't stop that. Now, what's this all about?
23: You mean you don't know where Aunt Abby is?
11: The last time I saw her, she was ready to hit the sheets for a full complement of slumber. What gave you the idea she was here?
23: But I called her at the hotel. She didn't answer.
11: How'd you get up here?
23: A man answered Auntie's room.
11: He said that she'd come up here, that you'd forced her to come with you. Me force Miss Abigail to do anything she didn't want to? Why that little old gal has a mind all of her own. But then,
23: who was the man in her hotel room?
11: That's what we're going to find out.
23: He's at the Plaza.
11: Uh, I just told you that.
23: Oh, Dolan, are you sure you took her home?
11: I certainly am.
23: I wonder what could have happened
11: to her. Plaza Hotel. Miss Abigail Murray, please. One moment. Did she answer? Give her a chance, will you? Well? Well? No answer yet. I'm sorry, sir, but Miss Murray is not in her room. You wish to leave a message? Yeah, yeah. Have her call Ross Dolan when she comes in. Yes, sir. Oh, and one more thing. Uh, Did you see Miss Murray a little earlier this evening with a man? A man? Uh, Let me think. Oh, yes. I saw her earlier. She came in with a big beef character wearing a wrinkled gray suit and a brown hat. Would you know him, sir? I would. It happens to be me. Oh, no, sir. You mean it was I. It was me, and don't you forget it.
23: He's not there, is he?
11: No. And the clerk doesn't seem to remember her going out.
23: Hmm. Well, in that case, Mr. Dolan, I'm sorry I bothered
11: you. Good night. Boy, she certainly was in a hurry. I wonder. Hey, Miss Murray. Miss Murray, I want to ask you if... I never did find out what hit me, but from the size of the bump on my noggin when I woke up, I figured it was at least the Santa Fe Chief or a Constellation full speed ahead. The first thing that greeted my sight when I opened my eyes was a pair of black shoes. I let my eyes travel upwards. All right, Dolan, what did you do with her? Do it whom? Abigail Murray. She's disappeared. That's what I like about you, Carter. You always bring out the news when it's a day old. Get on your feet. I want to ask you some questions. You've just got no mercy at all. Let me shake the ache out of my gray matter. What happened up here? Somebody slugged you? Oh, no, no, no. I I just butted my head against the wall. I, I do it all the time. Now then, what happened to Abigail Murray? You know as much as I do, Carter. You know about the car disappearing? Her car? Well, you took care of that. I sent the wagon out to pick up the body. They brought in the body, and the garage man sent a truck out after the car. When he got there, it was gone. Well, you got me. This is the first I've heard about that. I called Miss Murray at her hotel. She had gone. No one had seen her leave. Now, Dolan, just what goes on around here? What's the gag? I told you, I don't know. I called her, too. Her niece was up here looking for her. Her what? Her niece, uh, Faye Murray. Niece, huh? What's wrong with that? We checked on Abigail Murray at Norwalk, and she hasn't got a father, a mother, no brothers, and no sisters. So obviously, she couldn't have a niece. Mm. So what are you trying to give me? A little information on what happened after I took Abigail Murray to the Plaza Hotel. I came home, was here an hour when her niece showed up. I'm trying to tell you, Abigail Murray doesn't have a niece. So the girl just said she was her niece. Give me a description on the way downtown. I'll get out a call on it. On the way downtown? Where am I going now? I'm going to the morgue. I want you to take another look at Richard Way. It uh, couldn't wait for morning, huh? I want you to see that body before it disappears, too. I began to think about a number of things regarding Abigail Murray. Also, Faye Murray, the niece who wasn't a niece. Who was she? And why was she looking for Miss Abigail? Then we pulled up in front of the morgue, got out of the car, and went in. Did you take anything out of the dead man's pocket, Zolan? The first thing I learned as a private detective was to leave that strictly alone. Why? I just wondered. In here. Say, uh, who's the guy over there? You'll find out in due time. Okay, take a look. This the man you found in the back of your car? Yep. Sure. You can make a positive identification? Yep. I remember where the bullet struck, also his face. Uh-huh. Mr. Way, would you mind stepping this way, please? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I must be seeing double. This can't be. Well, Dolan, what do you say now? Well, this guy must be the dead man's twin brother. I've never seen such a resemblance before. That's right. This is John Way, Wei, Richard Way's twin brother, Ross Dolan. Oh, Mr. Dolan? Now oh. then, Mr. Way, uh, mind telling me again... When did you see your brother last? About 7 o'clock. He said he had an errand and left the apartment. Did he mention his appointment with Miss Murray? No, he didn't. You have no idea how your brother's body got in the back of Miss Murray's car? None whatsoever. Okay, thanks, Mr. Way. We'll call you if we need you. Thank you. Say, you want any more from me, Carter? No, just be around where I can find you. Well, I'll be home. Say, by the way, uh... Have you checked the bullet holes in Miss Murray's car to see if they match with the bullet in the dead man? I'd love to, but we haven't found the car yet. Say, when you do, Carter, I've got a little bet for you. Yes? I'll give you two to one, they match. I walked out of the morgue onto the street, leaving a very puzzled Carter standing there. But no more puzzled than a private eye named Dolan. The street was dark and forbidding. The lights in that district were black with age, and the buildings were dark and gloomy. I wondered how one twin felt when the other one died, because I'd read stories about the invisible threads which bound such people together. Then I felt a hand on my arm.
23: Stolen, wait.
11: Well, Miss Fay Murray, or uh, have you switched to another name by this time?
23: Stolen, I've come to ask a favor. A big one.
11: And I'm going to ask one of you. Just turn around and walk back into that morgue. There's a cop there named Carter who just love to please meet you. Please,
23: please, Dolan, listen to me. Forget all about Miss Abigail.
11: You mean your aunt? Or uh, aren't you the niece who isn't the niece?
23: I can't explain anything to you right now, but if you'll promise me something, I'll tell you the whole story in a few days.
11: Well, that's so kind of you. I get shot at, hit over the head, dragged around by the police, lose sight of my client, and you want me to wait. What for? This
23: is a matter of life and death, Dolan. I'm asking you to forget about everything that's happened. So? Because if you don't,
11: Somebody else will die, too. Faye Murray, if she was Faye Murray, had one great trick. She could disappear like nothing I've ever seen before. By the time I opened my mouth to ask another question, she'd melted away like a bonbon on a hot rock. I went down towards the lighted corner, and ten minutes later was in a taxi cab. I retraced the same route I'd taken earlier with Miss Miss Abigail when the cab got to the spot where the shooting had occurred, I got out and looked around. But there was nothing to look at, so I got going again. I remembered Miss Abigail mentioning the address of Richard Way. It was 327 Kendall on the other side of the park. I got out a block away. I stood there until the blinking red light had disappeared around the corner. I wanted to be sure no one had followed me. Then I made my way inside the apartment building and got the apartment number off the mailbox. I didn't care to announce my presence, so I took it very easy going up the stairs. The apartment building was as quiet as a grave, and the word grave reminded me of the dead man lying down in the morgue. When I got to the door of the apartment I was looking for, I could hear voices. John Way and Faye Murray, but they were too low to make out. So I looked for another method of getting in on the know. The apartment was one of those two-bedroom and bath affairs with a separate door for the kitchen. I moved inside through the kitchen. The two voices grew in intensity as I moved towards the living room door.
23: John, John, you promised.
11: Of course I did, my dear. Of course I did to get you back here. But
23: you told me if I got rid of Dolan, you'd take care of everything. You'd let Miss Abigail go. Oh,
11: and so I am, my dear. I am going to take care of everything.
23: You know, I could go to the police. I could tell them the whole story.
11: In your present condition, I hardly think so.
23: In that case, I'll scream. I'll yell as I as... You
11: fool? You make one sound or I'll kill you right now. I took a chance and moved closer what I saw surprised me, because the girl was tied in her chair, hand and foot, while John Way held his hand over her mouth. I started inside, but he was quicker than I was. Put up your hands. One move and I shoot. Dolan, I told you. You, come here. Sure. So, you just couldn't take Fay's advice. You had to come around here snooping. Huh? I'm beginning to figure a lot of things, Way. You killed your brother. Well, you're very observing. Where's Abigail Murray? What'd you do with her? Oh, oh! You want to know where Abigail Murray is, do you? Yeah. You know, I think I'll arrange for you to find out. I'll go a step further. I'll arrange for you to go with it. Well, she's still alive, then, huh? Where is she? In the tittle back of a car. I put her there. Hey, what's the matter with this guy? Say, is he He's this crunk? If you say I'm insane, I'll kill you right here. So that's the way it is. You think I'm insane, too, don't you? That's I am. All my life, it's rich at this, rich at that, rich at the other thing. So I killed him. Now, you're in pretty deep, mister. Better hand me that gun. Oh, you think you're sly, don't you? You think I'm going to just hand it over like that? I'm not... No? No. No, I've got it all set up. You, Faye, and Abigail are taking a little drive with me. Only I'm coming back alone. You stole the car, huh? Before the cops came back. Of course. That was very clever of me, don't you think? You uh, answered the phone in Abigail Murray's room when they called her, didn't you? <sighs> of course. I dropped in to see my old teacher. We were such pals, you know. She always gave me such good marks. <laughs> You're quite a clever guy. Uh, how'd you get her out of the hotel? Down the back way, servant entrance. Oh, it's quite deserted. I arranged that, too. Then you came over and conked me on the head, huh? Yes. Yes, after I locked up Miss Abigail in the car. Well, you get around, Mr. Way. You see, I followed Say, I thought she might do something silly like employing you. But I prevailed upon her to forget it, didn't I, my dear? You
23: lied to me. You told me that if I got rid of Dolan, you'd let Miss Abigail go
11: free. Oh, no. No. What I said was that I'd see that Miss Abigail was free. And she shall be. Because one is free when one is dead. What are you going to do? Drive the car in the river? They'll never find it buried in the mud. They won't find us either. Naturally not. You'll be in the car from now on. You say, Abigail. And uh, what happens when you try to get me out of here? I could start a ruckus. Uh-huh. I have that plan too. Turn around. What for? I said turn. Okay. Now what happens? I'm going to hit you over the head. Not too hard, but just hard enough to keep you quiet for a while, I guess. You You
2: fool! You you can make me? I think I can. I...
11: I was lucky enough to catch John Way with a fast chop to the chin. Then I pulled Carter, who came out with a squat, and took John Way down to the clink. At his trial, a group of doctors testified that he was violently and incurably insane. Later, I had a meeting with Miss Abigail and, of course, Faye at the Flamingo.
23: My, my, Mr. Dillon. When I asked you to drive with me that night, I never dreamed that we would become involved in such an adventure.
11: Well, neither did I. What
23: puzzled me is how did John get hold of my car long enough to put Richard's body in it?
11: Well, he told the doctors at the trial that he saw you take it into a filling station to have it greased. He represented himself as your brother, took the car, put his brother's body in it, and returned it to your hotel.
23: Oh, think of that. Uh,
11: Why did he hate you so much, Miss Abby? And and why uh, hate his brother? You know, I can't understand that. Richard was gay, a good student, well-liked. John was exactly the opposite. Moody, a bad student, with
23: violent dislikes.
11: It uh, probably gnawed away at his mind until he made it up to get rid of the two people he hated. I think you're right. Well, now, let's talk about Faye here. Why the pose is Miss Abigail's
22: niece?
23: Faye, you're merely an old friend. Why did you say you were my niece? Only because I thought it might carry weight with Mr. Dolan. Only I was raised and found wanting.
11: Oh, purely in a business sense. Try uh, me on the uh, social time sometime. Tonight? Uh, the sooner, the better.
23: And, of course, I'm coming along, too. You know, I've never been to a nightclub. <laughs> I've never even done the uh, the number.
11: Now, 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 take it easy, Miss Abby. Uh, how do you know you like it?
23: Oh, I shall. After all, a girl my age can get into trouble, too.
11: Yeah, you can say that again. Good night, folks. Don't forget to listen again next week, same time, over most of these ABC stations, when you will hear William Gargan say, I deal in crime. I deal in crime, starring William Gargan as Ross Dolan, is a special presentation of the American Broadcasting Company. It is written and directed by Ted Hediger. Special music is arranged and conducted by Rudy Schrager. Now here's a special program note. International intrigue. That's
12: what David Harding
3: Okay, now we're ready for my strawberry and whipped cream on top. We did do cherry for a while, but I don't like, I don't like maraschino cherries. So I changed it to a strawberry with whipped cream (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, to top my sundae off. And this week what I'm doing is... um, Jack Benny and Fred Allen—they were known for having a uh, a feud, <laughs> but they didn't really have a feud. Actually, in real life, they were the best. They were like best friends. But uh, you know, every time on Jack's show, he would you know he would put down Fred and bash Fred, and Fred they would bash him some too. But anyway, uh, this one is called the um, um, Benny. Alan feud and I think it's in six parts but this is part three of six but they kind of spread out and um, but anyway this one's called Benny Boulevard so uh, y'all enjoy
2: and now folks going from the ridiculous to the nauseating hello Phil hiya Jackson sorry I'm late pal I bet you thought I'd never get here I prayed for it well, tell me, Phil, how do you like broadcasting on Friday for a change? I don't know. How much change am I going to get? Ha, 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 ha! That Harris is phenomenal with a capital F tonight. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You corny. But on the level, Phil, don't you think Sunday is a pretty blank day now that all the comedians are off for the season? What do you mean, all the comedians? Fred Allen is still broadcasting. Phil, calling Allen a comedian is like slipping a rocking chair under Gypsy Rose Lee and calling her Whistler's mother. (laughs) Allen, a comedian. Look, fellas, anybody can get laughed with that stuff Fred Allen does every week. Take that Allen's Alley, for instance. There's nothing to it. What do you mean, there's nothing to it? I mean, it's a surefire formula. Now, look, every Sunday he goes around, knocks on doors, and asks the question. I'll show you. Give me that clothespin. What are you going to do, Jackson? I'm going to put it on my nose and make off like Fred Allen and take a trip to Benny's Boulevard. <laughs> now, Mary, you be Portland Hopper. Dennis, I want you to be Socrates Mulligan. And Phil, you're Falstaff, the highbrow poet. All right, Mary, let's go. Where'll I get this clothespin on my nose? Where? Maybe, me, 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 me. me. go ahead, Mary. Start it. <laughs> <laughs>
28: Okay. Oh, Mr. Bailey? Mr.
2: Bailey? Well, what is it, Seattle?
18: <laughs> As
2: the broom said to the dustpan, what do you hear from the mop? <laughs> I ad-lib that, folks. <laughs> I'm always ad-libbing.
28: Mama says if you don't stop ad-libbing, Someday you're going to say something funny and surprise everybody.
2: Oh, your father! Have you got a question for Benny's Boulevard, Mr. Benny? I certainly have, Seattle, and this is it. Who is the funnier comedian, Jack Benny or Fred Allen? And here we go to Benny's Boulevard to investigate. <laughs> Here we are at Benny's Boulevard.
28: Is this near Allen's alley, Mr. Benny? I can't
2: tell. I've got this clothespin pin on my nose. Well, let's find out what John Doe has to say. Oh, it's you again. Good afternoon. Now tell me, Mr. Doe, do you listen to radio? Only the commercials. You know what they talk about what they're selling. Well, what about the show itself that follows the commercial? Well, by the time that starts, I'm already down at the corner buying this stuff. I see Then you wouldn't know who's a funnier comedian Fred Allen or Jack Denny Nah, yeah. all I know is E-O. <laughs> I see Now Seattle <laughs> Now Seattle We'll see what Mrs. Nussbaum has to say Tell me, Mrs. Nussbaum, who do you think is the funniest comedian on the radio? Well, my first husband
20: like Abbott and Costello.
2: That's Costello.
20: And my second spouse is liking Fibber McGee and Becky.
2: I see. Well, tell me, Mrs. Nussbaum, who is your favorite comedian? Is it Jack Benny? You should live so long. <laughs> are
28: we going home now, Mr. Benny?
2: What are you holding your nose for?
28: Shall I tell them, folks?
2: <laughs> yeah, will behave yourself. Now to find out what Socrates Mulligan thinks. He lives right here. Uh, yeah. this one, folks. Well, Mr. Mulligan, I'm here to stew with you. I'm an ad-living fool. Now, Mr. Mulligan, I'm going to name two comedians, and you'll tell me which one you prefer. First, Fred Allen. Oh, he makes me laugh. And what does Jack Benny make you do? Uh, Not getting any place. Try this next house, Mr. Benny. Okay. Welcome, friend. Pray do come in. Walstaff's here, and I ain't ten. <laughs> you ain't fat either. <laughs> there I go with another ad lib. <laughs> Walstaff? Tonight. <laughs> this thing is killing me up here. Them tonight, <laughs> tonight we have a brand new question for you. That is Pricely why I'm here. That's precisely <laughs> Pricely. I have rotten a pole that Pricely was right. Have you heard, this isn't a blackout, Uncle Mo. you bought that hat too big.
1: <laughs> no, no, I haven't. Or,
2: I've saved the gloves that Mother wore when she knocked out Gunn Wait a minute, Paul. Staff, my question tonight is this. Who do you think is a funnier comedian, Brad Allen
14: or Jack
2: Benny? Allen is corny. He's nasal, he's dull. Benny's the same with no hair on his skull.
18: But all that I asked
2: was for you to compare us. Or a suckle saco- wave goodbye to Benny's Boulevard as two pretty waves wave back. <laughs> this ad-libbing will be the death of me. See what I mean, folks?
1: I just got in from New York. Oh, hello, Mr. Allen. Mr. Benny ain't home either. Yes, I know that. Mr. Allen, Mr. Benny's pet chicken is awful sick. His chicken is sick. What's wrong with it? I'm frying it to (laughs) death. Well, Rochester, here's what I called about. Is there any chance of using Mr. Benny's room while he's away? If you say you, no rent. I get it. I tell you what, Rochester, I'll take the room and when Mr. Benny gets home, I'll give him a check for whatever he wants. Give him a check? Well, yes. Yeah. That kind of eliminates the middleman, do I? <laughs> well, how about this? I'll give you the check and you can give it to Mr. Benny. How about this? You give me the cash and let nature take it course. Well, I don't see why we should be arguing about money, Rochester. After all, you should be glad to have someone around the house. You must be mighty lonesome in that big place there, all alone. All alone? Oh, Mr. Allen, come now. <laughs> Rochester, I hesitate to think what Mr. Benny will say when he gets home. It won't do for radio, will it? afraid not. Well, Rochester, I guess I won't uh, get my dress at the house of Benny with all your friends whooping it up around there.
18: I'm inclined to agree.
1: It's so all right. So I'll just let the room go. Goodbye, Rochester. Goodbye, Miss Allen. That was a fool, I nearly rented the room, honey. Honey? <laughs> Rochester, to whom were you just talking?
18: Oh, that
1: was my cousin Sylvester. Sylvester J. J. Honey.
18: Uh, uh, good, Goodbye, honey. I mean, Miss Allen.
29: My darling, oh, you fool. Oh, yeah. It's so nice to have you back on radio. I've
10: missed you. Oh, so you are the one.
29: <laughs> According
10: to Hooper, you are the one.
29: No, darling, we've all missed you. Why don't you come back, Fred?
10: Well, I'll tell you, darling. I, uh, I have been dabbling in something which, for the want of a better name, we shall call television.
29: Please, darling, people are eating. (laughs) Oh, I'm
10: sorry. Say, you didn't, by any chance, happen to see me on my first television show, did you?
29: No, I didn't, Fred.
10: Uh, Oh, you weren't home?
29: Oh, oh yes, I was home, darling.
10: Oh no, set, darling. No guts, darling. Uh Well, you know television's a new media, and I have discovered why they call it a media. Because nothing is well done. Or very little.
29: Oh, darling, I think you're so funny. So you are the one. <laughs> No, Fred. No, sp- uh, seriously speaking, darling.
10: Well, as if we haven't been. What else? Well, I mean? no,
29: no, no. Why did you leave, radio?
10: Well, I'll tell you, uh, Tallulah. They wanted me to do one of those programs where you call up people on the telephone and ask them questions and give them prizes, you see. And that's why I quit and went into television. You mean... Yes, it was a choice between the medium and the telephone.
29: Oh. <laughs> Wait for love. Oh, oh no now. No, don't, uh, don't,
10: don't. Uh, don't read the stuff in parentheses you skip oh, I'm that I'm well
29: anyway I- I- I'm glad I was able to get you back on radio even if it is only as a gets
10: uh-huh
29: you know when they told me about this big name broadcast I told them it wouldn't be a big name broadcast without you Fred
10: well in radio Fred has been a four-letter word for some time
29: <laughs> <laughs> oh in fact I insisted that they put you on this show well, you
10: insisted you met with some uh, stiff opposition did you well I had to go through channels oh I uh, say I've read about those channels but I had thought of coming to back to radio if I could find a new formula, a format, you know. I did get one idea, and strangely enough, it came from Portland. She seemed to think that if I... Uh... Mr.
18: Allen! Well... Mr. Allen!
10: Well, as I stand here and feign surprise, uh, if it isn't Portland now... Uh, Portland, Georgia, I had some more here, see... It... We didn't rehearse the audience. It says applause after this, but you see... This is what's mixing things. Portland, you're just in time. This is Tallulah Bankhead. Uh, hello, Portland. I'm glad to see you.
28: How do you do, sir? <laughs> Portland,
29: I understand that you weren't on the first television show, Fred. Did Why was that?
28: But my dress wasn't cut low enough.
29: Oh.
10: <laughs> so you,
29: you mean a dress with a V-neck?
10: A TV-neck. Well, before this conversation gets too fade, uh, Portland...
18: <laughs>
28: Portland, how
10: about telling Tallulah the idea you thought up for a radio show for me?
28: Oh, I didn't think of it. Mama thought of it.
10: Oh, your mother is writing for radio now? Well, uh, by the way, I was on television the other night, Portland. Did your mother see me?
28: Oh, she never could. Ah.
18: <laughs>
28: you mean that
10: your mother thinks that I...
28: As Mama put it
10: to the high heaven. <laughs> Ad-lib, a stinging retort. Fred, you're reading the parentheses. Oh, the parenthesis! This jumbo type. Oh, well, yes. Well, Portland, enough of Mama as a George Gene nothing. Now, how about, how about this idea of hers for a radio? Yes, let's hear the idea. The idea. Well,
28: Mama her. thought first, you ought to have an announcer who's Big and fat and jolly, yeah. and laughs all through the program.
10: Yep, sit up, huh?
28: And right. you want to get an orchestra leader who's tall, good-looking, and eats ham hocks. Ham
10: hocks? Well, say, Portland, that sounds like, uh... And
28: you have a young fellow who sings. And his mother always wants you to pay him more money.
10: Singer, but Portland, that idea... And
28: you have a butler who drives your car, which is a broken-down Maxwell. Maxwell, but... And you have a quartet that sings your commercial. Commercial, but... And for your saucer, you get a cigarette company. Cigarette, but... (laughs) (laughs) And you'll be the... Star of the show, Mr. Oh, Allen. Really, I
10: can be in it too. Uh-huh. Huh? You yeah. wear
28: a toupee. Yeah. You're always thirty-nine years old. Uh-huh. You play a violin and you do your own laundry yeah. and you have a washing machine that you rent out to your neighbors. Shame. And you're very tight and you keep your money down in a ball.
10: I'm sort of the pinch penny type. Huh?
28: Yes, and that's a wonderful title. You could call it the Pinch Penny Program.
10: Well, I don't know, Portland. What's the future in becoming a salesman for Jell-O? I mean, where could you go? Well,
28: what's the matter? Do you think Mama's idea revolutionary? Well,
10: it is a little revolting.
28: <laughs> what do you think, Miss Bankhead? You haven't had any lines for a whole page.
29: I was wondering when you notice, darling. <laughs> do
28: you think that kind of a program would go anywhere? Yes,
29: darling, to another network. <laughs> How
28: so about trying out this idea right now, Mr. Allen? No,
10: no, I don't think I could... But, uh... Mr.
28: Allen, what have you got to lose? Face. An
10: excellent reason
29: for doing it, darling. So on with the pinch-penny program. Pinch-penny.
2: The pinch-penny program. Ha, 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 ha. Thirty minutes of jinks with your favorite radio comedian star stage, screen, and laundry, Pinch Penny!
18: <laughs>
2: well, here it is, 7 o'clock, and Pinch Penny isn't here yet. I wonder where he can be.
10: Say, that always gets me. There's a guy who gets $25,000 a week for doing that program, and you know he's not going to be late. He's probably been standing there since noon with his bare money belt hanging out. LAUGHTER Try another opening. Could you scare up another opening? Okay. Well, as you know,
2: ladies and gentlemen, this is the first show of the new season. And so we give you the star of our show, just back from an extended three-month, 40-cent tour of Radio City, Pinch Penny.
1: Hello again.
10: (laughs) Hello again. This is Pinch Penny. And Don Thomas, you know that's not true. You know I took a cruise to Honolulu. It was a wonderful boat trip. Really? How did you go, Mr. Penny? First class? Well, not exactly. Uh, second class? Well, no, you see... Uh, third class? Well, no, Don say. Oh, then you must have gone steerage. Steerage? Why, Don, how can you say that about me? It's easy. Uh, didn't you... Uh... Find it pretty crowded down in steerage? Don, for your information, I'll have you know that I had the whole boat to myself. Uh, what boat was that? Well, it was one of those little boats that hangs over the side of the big boat. <laughs> oh, so you went stowaway. Yes, that's the class I was trying to think of. And it's the only way to travel, Don, with the wind and the spray in my hair. Yeah. Uh, your hair, Mr. Payne? Well, I had it hanging over the side of the boat. <laughs> now, stop that, Don. Uh, did you like Honolulu? Oh, it's so colorful there, and I'll never forget the day we docked. All the little native boys standing on the pier, and the people on the boat throwing pennies into the water, and the way those little rascals dive in and fight to get that money.
14: They go to all that trouble for pennies?
10: Well, after all, all Don, it's not taxable. No inheritance tax or anything. Liquid assets, you know, just as now, you pick it out. Now, Mr. Penny, don't tell me that you... Uh... Now, Don, please, after all, say, where is everybody? Where's Dennis? I want to talk to Dennis about his
14: song for our first show. Oh, here he is. Hello, Dennis. Hello, John. Mr. Penny, my mother thinks... Hello, Dennis. My mother thinks I ought to get more money for this new season. I
10: said hello, Dennis. Hello, Mr. Penny.
14: My mother thinks I ought to get more
10: money for this new season. Now, later, later, kid. Now, look, for your first song this year, my mother
14: thinks I'm underpaid
10: your mother doesn't know what she's talking about now for your are what you said
14: <laughs> now for your first song my mother is the brains of the family some brains now look kid for your first song she was an honor graduate from the university of southern california come louder I say she was an honor graduate from the university, of the university. now cut that out I pay you ample salary you mean sample <laughs> My mother says that Bing Crosby makes as high as $50 a week and sometimes $75. Well,
10: Bing Crosby has a lot of interests. He's in the orange juice business. He owns a baseball club. Where does he
14: find the time for all that?
10: He makes movies. He runs a racetrack. Where does he find the time for all that? He has four sons.
14: Where does he find the time... <laughs> Where? Well, my mother either says I get money or I'll quit. Well, goodbye, darling. I mean, goodbye. I mean, goodbye, darling. Every time I open my mouth to quit, somebody says goodbye, darling. All right, goodbye. And my mother says she's going to send you back these pennies you sent from Honolulu.
2: Well.
18: <laughs> Mr. Penny, you
10: don't mean you dole for pennies with those kids in Honolulu. Well, the water was so delightfully warm, darn And now I am in a spot Where is everybody, Mr. Penny? We gotta have a rehearsal of the show Well, Portchester should be here any minute with the scripts Oh, here's Portchester now Oh, yes, hello, Portchester Hello, Bo (laughs) Now, now, look, darling I mean, uh, Portchester Did you, did you, did you finish typing the scripts?
29: Yes, Bo, but I had a lot of trouble It's tough to write on a typewriter with only five keys on it. Only five letters on that typewriter?
10: Well, what's the matter with that? I've done very well with those five letters.
29: What five letters are they, Portchester? L, S, M, F, and T. (laughs) Well, it's like sending up smoke signals.
10: Well, it's a Corona typewriter, isn't it?
2: (laughs) 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 Mr. Penny, I I think you're the funniest. (laughs) Oh, so you're the one.
10: Well, I wish the rest of the cast would get here so we could rehearse. Well, well Mr. Penny, I have the quartet here if you wanted to run over the commercial. Oh, commerc- we have no commercial. This is a sustaining program. But they've already rehearsed it, Mr. Penny, haven't you, fellas? But, but... <clears throat> but, fellas, we don't need a quartet. We have no commercial. Okay, fellas, let him hear it.
27: We're
2: S-U-S-T-A-I-N-I-N-G we sustaining empty seat. sustaining multi you
10: I haven't got time for that now. I'm waiting for my clarinet teacher. He's supposed to be here. I'm going to call him up and see what's keeping him. Hand me that phone, will you, Pochester? Here you are, Bo. Thank you. Hello? Hello, operator. What is the matter with those girls out there?
20: Mindy, blue eyes are flashing. <laughs> if they are, Ethel, it's the first time I ever saw them flash. Did he give you a present when he got back from his vacation? Yeah, he gave me a locket. Ain't it a beauty? Oh, yeah, an Indian head. But it's nice, though, isn't it? I'll oh, a dime a dozen. Oh, not these. They've gone up. They're ten for a dime. But instead of bringing me expensive gifts, I sure wish he'd stop making up new rules. Oh, Mindy, you're always telling me about your troubles. I have troubles, too, but you never ask me how I'm getting along. All right, Ethel. How are you getting along? Don't ask. (laughs) Hey, how are you getting along with Herman? Don't ask. Gee, I thought he was going to take you out Saturday night. Didn't ask. Why, I thought he had intentions. Oh, sure he's got intentions, but he don't want to get married. (laughs) Oh, man, you sure got to hand it to him. Not Herman, he takes it himself. (laughs) That other fellow, what's his name? You know, Harry. Oh, I could never marry him. Why not? Well, we used to ride home on the subway together, and I got off on 34th Street, and he got off on 23rd Street. So what? So I realized I could never marry a man below my station. <laughs> Say, Ethel, he's flashing again. Maybe we ought to answer. Hello, hello, yes, hello. Hey,
10: what's going on out there? I want you to get my clarinet teacher on the phone for me and tell him to come right down here. What? Oh, all right. I'll give you one, too. Gold diggers, copper
14: diggers, Indian heads. she wants here. I'm back, Mr. Penny. My mother changed my mind. Oh, she did. But this is going to be my last season because for next year, my mother's got me a contract with Metro Golden Mayor for $1,000 a week. $1,000? A Oop.
18: Where? <laughs> <laughs> <Rare>. Where?
14: <laughs> That's right,
10: a thousand a week MGM signed a contract with you Ooh,
2: signed
10: Now cut that out
2: I have no fear, Meredith Harris. Is here Well, it's about time
10: <laughs> It's about time you showed up, where were you? Now, take it easy, Dad, I'm here, ain't
2: I? Where was you, he asked me Where, uh, where was you? I said, where were you?
10: <laughs>
2: okay, if you're going to get geometrical about it Well, ain't we dandy? If I'd have known, I'd have brung you an apple. It's not brung, it's broad. Ah, tell it to the morons. (laughs) What goes around here? How about the rehearsal?
10: Oh, you'll have to wait until we get through with my clarinet lesson. Until my teacher comes, I think I'll do a little practicing. My teacher will be here any minute. He comes uh, by bus, so it'll take a little while for him to get here.
14: (laughs) I think I'll get down and have an ice cream soda. I think I'll go down, too. I'll have an ice cream soda with you. I'm going down,
2: too. I can't stand any more of this.
27: Well, come with us. You're going to have a soda? Yeah.
2: I always take one jigger of soda. Got to leave plenty of room for that good stuff on top. Cowards!
10: back again, are you, Portland? Well, tell me, what did your mother think of the way uh, we took off that sterling character she originated for radio?
28: Well, Mr. Allen, she doesn't think it's your type of program. Really. She has another fellow in mind for Mister,
10: it. Uh, Mr. Livingston, I presume? <laughs>
28: Well, she has got a wonderful idea that would just fit you. Oh, another idea, really? Uh-huh. She thinks you ought to have a program where you walk down an alley yeah, and you talk to people you meet there, yeah. like a Southern congressman, uh-huh. an old farmer, and an Irishman, and, and... a lot of
10: old sure-file jokes and find myself broadcasting at the same time everybody else is listening to a quiz program someplace. Okay. I know what you mean, Paul, and I'm not going through that again. No, sir, I'm not <laughs>
3: Okay, y'all, that does it for today's Afternoon Radio Theater Sunday, or ART. And um, I hope you had as much fun listening to it as I had fun putting it together. Uh, next week, I am going to do a musical-type uh, show, and it's because I promised Annabelle that I would do that, so that's what I'm going to do next Sunday, so look forward to that and um so I hope y'all like my show as much as she says she likes it so uh anyway leave me comments suggestions whatever and I'll do my best to get it for you take care y'all come back now you hear
9: bye bye